VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Friday, June the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So still socked in here in the eastern portion of the province. Apparently not as nice on the west coast as it was yesterday. But on that front, it is indeed fire season. I know many of you listening to the program this morning would have friends and family in Alberta that has really struggled with out-of-control wildfires. Just look at some of the images coming from Nova Scotia. Unbelievable stuff. Some 3,200 homes have been evacuated in that province alone. So in an effort to help our Atlantic neighbors, and we even offered help to the province of Alberta. I don't think they took us up on the offer. But in Nova Scotia, all four of our active water bombers are in Nova Scotia. Probably a very good thing. But we do know it's been a fairly active fire season already in this province. As mid-May, the government was tracking 53 wildfires. That's triple the number from the same period last year. But the big conversation regarding water bombers, and this is five years old, or at least or almost five years old, is that we had a full complement of five. One got damaged almost five years ago, struck a rock when it was fighting a fire on the Buren Peninsula. There was conversations about filing an insurance claim, but the deductible was about $10 million, about the exact same as the repair bill would have been. Then they talked about trying to sell it, and now apparently going to try to repair it. Seems like a long time to come back to the original decision to go ahead and try to repair. Selling a damaged water bomber seemed like it was going to be a tall task, to say the very least. No real timeline about when we're going to enter into these repairs, but it's been long overdue. We've seen what happened here in central Newfoundland last year, a few years ago in, uh, in Labrador. And, of course, with the conditions that we see across the country, now it hasn't been that dry, certainly in this neck of the woods, but now the province is going to apparently move ahead and finally repair that fifth water bomber because to have a full fleet would be optimal. There is one water bomber pilot who I exchange emails with fairly frequently, and he's no big fan of mine, and so be it. But what I do always remind myself, even when we go back and forth at each other, nothing but mad respect for the work that the water bomber pilots do and how important they and even the firefighters on the ground, of course, what they're going to do. And hopefully the fire season doesn't get too bad in this neck of the woods. All right, a couple of quick notes. So I saw a really great social media post, and they're few and far between, about Dawson Mercer. Apparently spotted out in his hometown of Bay Roberts, him and his brother Riley, who's a draft pick of the Montreal Canadiens. Mercer coming off 27-goal campaign in the National Hockey League and on his second full, full season. He was spotted mowing the lawn of a business that apparently he's been mowing that business's lawn since he was a kid. So, I, you know, on top of that, good on Dawson and Riley. But you wonder what kind of extension his agent must be talking about with the New Jersey Devils. 27 goals. You know, I think in his entry-level contract, making somewhere in the neighborhood of $800,000, you know, two-way contracts, he played in the American League, it's 80000 playing the National League, it's 800000 Yeah, got to think he's 27 goals, puts him into that five-year, $25 million kind of range. So good on him. And also, out in Bay Roberts at the Bay Arena this weekend is the annual Bay Wheels Car Show. It's been on the go since 1988, started as a fundraiser for a charity in the Orange Lodge in Cupid's, and all these years later, the Bay Wheels Vintage Car Show continues. So that'll be a sight, folks in the area, if you're so inclined. I do enjoy 
some of the antique and vintage and special autos. And congratulations to members of the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador artistic gymnastics team that were competing in the Nationals in Richmond, B.C., uh, May 18th to the 22nd. Good showing all around. Came home with a couple of national medals. Congratulations to Rachel Dooley. She won a bronze medal in the beam. I mean, when you watch gymnastics, it's really superhuman to see what they can do in apparatuses like the beam, that little narrow uh, beam that they walk and twirl and jump and flip on. And, of course, dismount is always pretty cool. And Lauren Winters, she won a silver medal in the floor for the best choreography. So congratulations to those two and all the members of the artistic gymnastics team. Okay, let's talk about homelessness for a second. You know, again, I've said these things many times, and I'm going to stick with it. You know, when provincial or federal governments, they rally and they utilize every possible way, whether it be financially or resources, to deal with things like natural disasters. But inside the world of food insecurity and homelessness, not so much. Even just in this neck of the woods, and I know homelessness is a part of the conversation right across the island, right across Labrador, right across the entire country, but a couple of examples of note. So it is very good news that there's been so uh, a kickstart to the folks at the gathering place to increase the number of beds that they're going to be able to offer for folks who need emergency shelter. So what has happened is that the former Sisters of Mercy Convent, I'm right there on Military Road, a 180-year-old building, is going to be moved into emergency shelter, transitional housing, affordable housing. So that increases the space for some 90 guests. But we hear the stories, whether it be from End Homelessness St. John's, the folks at Stella Circle, the Gathering Place, and otherwise, we're seeing more and more of it, including homeless families. So good news here. And massive congratulations to a couple of private citizens who got this campaign going. $2 million donation from Pat O'Callaghan and uh, Paula Butcher. Bravo. $2 million. Now, Mr. Callahan's an Irishman. He's been living in Atlanta, Canada for some three decades. The business environment has been very kind to him. And as a result, he's been very altruistic and generous. So thank you very much to Mr. O'Callaghan and Paula Butcher for their $2 million. It's an $11 million campaign. $7 million more is going to come from the government. And then there's going to be a fundraising campaign to raise the final $2 million required for that $11 million project. And in Gander. So apparently over the winter, we were utilizing hotel rooms to shelter folks who are homeless. And now with the tourism season coming, the hotels want the rooms back. So a couple of things. You know, whether it be inside the envelope of immigration and or homelessness, hotel rooms are a stopgap measure. They're not sustainable as a place to find a safe place to lay your head in out of the elements. So... Of course, there's going to be people who think this is awfully mean-spirited by the hotels to want the rooms back, but they have a business to run. And we can't be leaning on that sector, the private sector, to do what needs to be done by governments. So it's a crying shame that, that this day and age, modern-day Canada, that so many people find themselves without a place to be safe, to lay their head, to be protected, hopefully in a healthy environment. So there is no emergency shelter in Gander. Now, the government has been working with these individuals to ensure that they do indeed have a place to live. Apparently, approximately half who are staying in hotel rooms have found a place, whether it be in Gander or close by. But again, so maybe we can reach out to Kim Beers. Uh, she's part of the Homelessness Network group out in that area to talk about what the need is. Now, the town has recently acquired the Pentecostal Church. There was a fire a number of years ago. Uh, they built a new church in 2018. There, oh, pardon me, not a fire. They built a new church in 2018, so the town bought the Pentecostal church, which possibly can be transitioned into an emergency shelter and maybe some permanent issues. But 
with no rentals and the affordable housing, which are simply not there. Now, in this area, there's been some funding for 1,500 affordable units. We don't know the status or the progress with constructing them, finalizing them, making them available for people, but it's just amazing. You know, governments can mobilize very quickly on a variety of important fronts, which they could and should, but I don't seem to think there's that kind of level of urgency when it comes to homelessness, which has a massive societal impact, and food insecurity. You know, again, there's a lot of middle-class folks like myself that... The whole stubborn food pricing issue and the numbers of folks, some millions, four or five million Canadians continue to rely on a food bank, but yet government kind of comes at it piecemeal and band-aids. Food banks are not supposed to be a backstop for government. They were a one-off, and now they're a feature for millions of Canadians and their family every single day. Amazing stuff. All right, so apparently today there's going to be an update coming from the government, Minister Osborne, and, uh, oh my God, her name just escapes me now. Lynn, can you get me Lynn's name, the College Registered Nurses Day? Sorry about that. I should have that on tip of my tongue. Those, so they're going to make an announcement about some of the amendments associated with the registered nurses and their ability to expand their scope of practice. So we know that we're told that they're going to be allowed to go through the required training to prescribe medication, refer patients to specialists. But what we don't know is the time that it takes, the impact on monitoring or supervising on the floor as nurses go through these three training modules, how that's going to impact delivery throughout this course, whether or not many RNs will take up the possibility. In some collaborative units or some remote parts of the province, it's very likely some of the registered nurses will indeed do this. It would be most beneficial to them and I would think to their patients. But the big question being asked by many is whether or not there's going to be increased pay for additional work. And that's not an untoward request or even demand coming from anybody who does whatever type of work. You had a contract, you had a job description, it came with a, cert a certain around amount of money being paid to you. If you're going to do more, nobody really wants to do more without getting paid more or some accommodations made. So we're going to get that update today. And there's another couple updates that would be sure great to have. For instance, there was a lot of talk there for a good stretch of time about the province's ground ambulance service. One of the only real pieces of news in the most recent budget was that the government, through a consultant yet again, was going to try to figure out how to consolidate some 60 splintered contracts into one entity under the Newfoundland Health Services when we don't really know what's going on. Has the consultant been put in place? Do we have any level of additional information? Because paramedics need to know. Sometimes inside the world of healthcare, healthcare professionals, the paramedics sort of get left out of the conversation far too often. And it might be me and it might be you that needs one of those first responders today. Hopefully not but the possibility is always there. So what is the update on that front? And plus, then you look at some of the things that grab headlines, rightfully so, with government, how they approach and they deal with some of the private contracts that they've let, whether it be for paramedic or ambulance services or bus services. Remember when Smith's contract was torn up out in Whitburn, he's suing the government. It was all about, you know, whether or not there was accuracy in government's allegations about Smith's ambulance services, which have been there for decades. Also about dispute resolution mechanisms that were not utilized. And now the same thing can be said for Gladney's bus service. So they're going to sue the government. There was a lot of confusion, and the operators at Gladney's bus say to this day they still don't really know what went on. Government points to one tragic incident, which seemed to be a freak accident. I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure, but I've heard the stories, and they've been backed up by several sources, including at Gladney's and some people who were in the area that fateful day where a man was struck and killed. But then they say there was ongoing safety issues. Well, the fact of the matter is, when the some 20 schools that Gladney served, 
and their contract was suspended and continues to be, that while the district tried to figure out how they were going to satisfy the numbers of students that were going to be left without a bus because of this decision, very quickly, other operators were using Gladney's drivers and Gladney's buses. So it seems to me that there's a fair amount to be yet understood inside a court, and Gladney's are suing the government on this one. But, you know, imagine, at this moment, still don't really know exactly why the contract was suspended. And if it's safety, boy, I don't know how all of a sudden the same drivers of buses were safe enough to be used by other operators, but I suppose we'll find out in the courts. All right, quickly, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? I had a sore throat this morning. So tourism season is upon us. We had a call yesterday, a lady talking about her brothers want to come home for a visit this summer, looking for a rental car, and then the quoted associated cost of $3,800 for 10 days. The thought is that the man will not come home for that and that reason alone. So we talked about some options, whether it be Toro, the ride-sharing app, and or people talk about going to U-Haul, renting a pickup truck, for far less than going through one of the classic or traditional rental car companies. But is there a role that government can play here? I don't really know. We don't, you know, government can't get into the rental car business necessarily, of course. But this has been a long-running concern. But can you imagine how many people would say, nope, whether it be with air access, and I can't believe the number of folks who are scoffing at an idea that says it's probably a good focus area for government to expand international air travel. Like, I just don't understand why people think that's a bad idea. I mean, that could have an enormous upside. You know, if we had two international flights, one to Heathrow, one to Newark in New Jersey, I don't know why that's a bad thing. Now, Mr. Steele, John Steele, has been taken to task when he makes references to how the government funds the interprovincial uh, ferry service that serves about 10,000 residents on these islands, and it's about $80 million. $5 million comes back through fares. He says maybe the same type of focus can be afforded to the air travel business. I don't know. You want to take it on? We can do it. In the tourism world, I don't know why this took so long, but thankfully there's now a new cafe out at Cape Spear. How many people working in the hotel business or at Airbnbs or whatever level of accommodation, and the visitor says, where should I go? What should I do? Somewhere in the top three is, well, you have to go to Cape Spear, easternmost point in North America. Now, not a whole lot to see, necessarily. I like it out there. Pretty cool spot to be. But there was never any amenities. So now there's going to be a cafe. Sounds pretty great. And also we talked about the potential for tourists to go home with one sock on when if it wasn't the high portion of the uh, tourism season, the bathrooms weren't even open. So it's good to see that. All right, let's talk about energy. So Energy NL's conference has wrapped up, and a tumultuous time to say the very least. Now apparently after Equinor Canada's lead made presentation to the attendees, the pessimism has been reduced somewhat between... now. Of course, between the Premier and Charlene Johnson and others, they will try to paint a rosier picture than might be the reality. But the Premier says this is going to get done. Okay, remains to be seen. The Equinor Group say that given the cost, which they say the numbers that we hear thrown around, like $16 billion, is not the real number. So they're talking about a way to do this more efficiently and to get all their ducks in a row. So I wasn't there. I didn't hear all of the commentary and the conversations held on the floor. But apparently... The air that got sucked out of the room, some got re-injected yesterday when we heard from Equinor directly. And also we heard from Suncor. Now, we don't have a whole lot of influence in the Equinor decision. They say that the benefits agreement discussion did not get sidelined to the point where that's why the delay has been put in place for up to three years. But Suncor, we actually have skin in the game. So their Canadian lead was presenting once again. 
No real details about what's going on with repairs to the Terra Nova FPSO out of Bull Arm. They can tell us that there's hundreds, if not a thousand plus workers out there trying to do said repairs. No talk about when they might be resuming production, if they ever do. And again, we put $205 million cash on the barrel head and then a royalty relief of another $300 million. So we are absolutely intimately involved in that particular project. While the executives from BP and uh, Synovus and ExxonMobil made themselves available for questions from the audience and to the media, not so much with Suncor. In addition to that, Suncor having a pretty good run of it lately, not maybe here, but on the big scheme of things, and at the exact same time, in an effort to save $400 million by the end of this year, they're going to eliminate 1,500 positions. And again, they're doing fine. In February, Suncor announced that they earned $2.74 billion in the fourth quarter of 2022. That was a 76% increase from the $1.55 billion it earned in the same three months of 2021, but no details coming from them. Just a couple of quick hits before we get to your calls. All right. So it really does feel that John Risley and his World Energy GH2 group think that it's just a matter of time before final approval and sanction is given to their wind to hydrogen to ammonia uh, project on the Port of Port Peninsula is a go. They've now finalized the acquisition of the Port of Stephenville. And again, some of this feels like cart in front of horse type of stuff, but Mr. Risley is really quite bullish on the fact that this is going to be a go. Now, we can talk about social license and all the rest of it, and we did hear those eight five-minute pitches from eight different organizations that have proposals in front of government at this moment in time, and some of them are really quite different from each other. You know, ABO with their want to power Brea Renewable Fuels, Port of Argentia without the need for Crown Land in their first phase. So there's lots of interesting different topics inside of the proposals, which are 19, only eight spoke in front of Energy NL. But anyway, you want to take that on? A couple of quick hitters. I have long been baffled about what the issue is surrounding Chinese police stations operating in this country and around the world. So there's this human rights watchdog called Safeguard Defenders. They say that there's more than 100 of these facilities worldwide in more than 50 countries, including, I think there was four talked about here in this province or in this country. So now the RCMP says it has, in effect, shut down illegal police activity in Ontario, Quebec, and B.C., regarding these Chinese police stations. Amazing stuff. So we've heard from Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, who was under fire, and some of it's his own doing. But what exactly are these police stations even doing? So safeguard defenders say that they're monitoring Chinese nationals and those suspected of uh, committing a crime being pressured to return to China to face persecution. The Chinese say, oh, no, we're just helping people renew driver's licenses and what have you, which is a little bit hard to believe, but... Apparently, we're shutting down these Chinese police stations, and I guess the summary to that would be good, because you know full well it's got to be something more nefarious than we're simply helping uh, Chinese Canadians renew their driver's licenses, so I thought that was interesting stuff. And if you want to talk about David Johnson, who is being pretty obstinate, doesn't want to step down as the special rapporteur, even though he doesn't have the confidence of the House, and speaking of confidence, does this become a confidence vote? Can it be turned into one? If the majority of parliamentarians think it's time to replace Mr. Johnson, even though who would be foolish enough to take on the job, given the level of vitriol associated with the work being done? Anyway, let's take that on. Why don't I say a very quick hello to my old dear friend, Leo Locke. Leo's son Steve and I played hockey together growing up, and he was a feature at the rink. 
Heaney's wife, Gloria. Gloria passed some while back, and our deepest condolences to the Locke family, of which I still know Lee, Locke, and Steve, and all the rest of them. And I've just been speaking with uh, their grandchild, Ashley. So, Leo, hope you're doing okay. Because Lord knows all that you've given to the community and the friends you've made, the support network is there. So I just want to say a special hello to my old buddy, Leo Locke, this morning. And some great memories of being on the road, especially with the Locks and the boys. All right. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to wrap up the week. You know the deal that requires you in the queue and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. Say good morning to the PC member for exploits. He, uh, did the, sorry, wrong clicker. Good morning, Pleeman Forsey. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Uh, first of all, Patty, I would like to say that uh, certainly our hearts and thoughts are with the residents of Nova Scotia, uh, you know, as they continue with the forest fires in that area. Which, uh, which also leads me then, Patty, into my call this morning. Uh, I would like to touch on the annual firefighters training school that's uh, being held this week here in Grand Falls, Windsor. I did have the opportunity, certainly on uh, Wednesday, to uh, join uh, Fire Commissioner Robert Fowler and tour some of the training that's, that's being held here. You know, they go through a complete training course from com- combating fires, inspections probably, high angle, hazmat, you know, and there's other training, of course, you know, and that's some some of the most intense exercises, you know. So I, I would like to acknowledge those volunteer and career firefighters, you know, for taking part in this week's event. And, and to know, Patty, that, uh, you know, they're using their own personal time to do this, you know, some of them are taking vacation time, which shows the dedication and commitment, you know, that they have uh, they have for what they do. So the more supports and training that government can provide to those people to make them more prepared to face what they have to face on a day-to-day basis, Patty, is, is certainly very, very important. Well, of course it is. Uh, just a quick question. Can you confirm, because I was told that all four of our water bombers in our active fleet are in Nova Scotia. Then I just heard from someone in Labrador that one is actually parked at uh, uh, Five Wing Goose. Do you know the status of these units? Uh, uh, I can't commit, uh, Patty, to uh, to say if there there's four over there or not. I, I, I did that uh, two weeks ago. I did ask uh, ask uh, uh, Minister Loveless in the House of Assembly, you know, uh, what what complement we have on bombers right now, and he did say that there was three uh, bombers, you know, complemented to fly. So whether whether they've uh, recognized the other fourth one to go, I don't know. I, I can't answer that. Fair enough. Now there has been a change of tune over the recent past regarding that fifth damaged water bomber. So. It's about five years ago, but here we are. It looks like the, we will entertain a repair. When government was looking at filing an insurance claim, the deductible was about $10 million based on a, an accident or an incident that had happened prior. The $10 million repair bill was about equal to the deductible. Certainly that price tag has risen, but now it looks like the government is going to move ahead r- with repairs. Do we know any more than that vague, yes, we're going to do something? Um, just right now, Patty, they did issue an RFQ in, in February to uh, just re- request for qualifications to uh, to do something with the with the bomber. Uh, uh, there's no uh, there's no further action on that yet, as far as, far as I know. The, the uh, bids came in in May for the RFQ, and they may proceed with something something extra. But we certainly need the uh, extra bomber. We certainly need that fifth water bomber. I mean, say the forest fires uh, have proven that. You know, we look at Alberta forest fires and and the Nova Scotia fires 
fires is happening right now and the more frequent uh, fires that we're having. And I mean, say certainly last year, government certainly learned a lesson last year from from what happened here in central Newfoundland. You know, it showed that government wasn't prepared for, for what did happen. So we certainly need our forest fire capacity brought up to standards, you know, especially with the extra water bomber and, and, and ground crews and whatever equipment, Patty, that we can we can supply to those uh, those forest fire uh, those forest fire people to to be able to attack those forest fires when they happen. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and it's not that it's been around where I live, but if we're told that as of mid May there was fifty five active forest fires, triple the amount from the year prior, then being prepared on the ground and in the air. We can't be caught, and you know, someone wrote me an email this morning saying, how can we possibly take the risk of having our water bombers in another province when it's fire season here? Well, the fact of the matter is Nova Scotia helped us as well last year, sent out a fair complement of uh, firefighters on the ground to, to help us battle the blazes in Central, and of course, their planes. They can get back here pretty quick if need be, so anyway, I'd be curious to hear from uh, Minister Lovelace about what exactly the plan is for that fifth water bomber, because if we needed five, nothing's changed. In, if, in fact, things have maybe become more potentially dangerous and risky so if we ever needed five then we don't there's no argument as to why we don't need at least five now well, we certainly do, Patty. You know, I mean, say that—that's been shown, that's been proven. You know, through the, especially last year. I'll, I'll go back to last year. You know, like that's—that's that's been proven that we certainly need our fifth water bomber. Uh, we got caught last year with uh, not only, I, I suppose, the one here in Central. Uh, there was five five forests on the go at uh, four, five forest fires on the go at one time. Mm-hmm. So they were rotating the bombers uh, to their highest needs where where need be. But uh, that didn't work. You know, the, the forest fire got out of control here in Central, uh, and we. We certainly needed the fifth water bomber at that time, and we we certainly need it now. So you know, the the, the more that the government can uh, can do to get that fifth water bomber in the air right now, we we, we certainly need it. That we do. I appreciate the time. Anything else quickly before we say goodbye, Playman? No, just I, I guess to, uh, as my initial call, I just would like to recognize recognize all the volunteer and uh, and career firefighters in our province, and and certainly thank them for their service. Appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's hear what's happening with a teddy bear convoy for the January. Say good morning to John Summers on line number three. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, doing great. Doing great. Uh, like to see the weather a little bit better, but hey, you know, <laughs> it, it is what it is. Who are you representing, Patty, John? I just, wanted, I just wanted to let you know that uh, this weekend um, we're holding our annual teddy bear con- convoy boat in St. John's and Cornerbrook. Uh, Cornerbrook will be on Saturday and ours will be on Sunday. And I just wanted to give the uh, the public a heads up that uh, on Sunday we will be leaving uh, Keter Transport Lot at Paddy's Pond and uh, the convoy will be going down to the Janeway and we'll be leaving there at about 11 o'clock. So between 11 and 12 we could have upwards to 100 trucks on the highway and the outer ring road headed to the Janeway. So are these teddy bears that you've already collected or collecting along the way or what happens? No, we don't we don't deliver teddy bears to the uh to the Janeway. We deliver a check to the Janeway. Uh this is an initiative that started back in 2003 and to date we have raised over $600,000. Bravo. Good man yourself. So how do you go about raising the money to eventually provide the check? Well, what happens, there's a, a great, great number of people uh, that get involved. 
a lot of drivers take pledge sheets, and then you have all sectors of the transportation industry, like the uh, guys that sell the trucks, serves the trucks, and sell the parts for the trucks. They all get involved and uh, give us uh, corporate contributions and all that kind of stuff. So every year, like uh, things have been working exceptionally well, and with Cornerbrook. Um, they came out a, a few years ago and started the West Coast convoy. And between the two of us, like, we're upwards about maybe $80,000 a year for the Janeway. It's amazing work and good on you. But again, you know, whether it be the telethon or other fundraising initiatives, how many people would not get the help and the treatment of the, uh, the equipment that they need if it wasn't for folks like yourself and folks who contribute to the telethon when it's generally thought to be a provincial responsibility, but we all backstop it with our own level of generosity or whatever people can do. And so good on you and the folks at the Just for Kids Transportation Group for doing this again this year. Great. And Patty, like I said, we're going to be on the road. Uh, we'll have a police escort and uh, we'll have as much safety equipment as we can out there. But we'd just like to let the people know that a little bit of, <coughs> a little bit of caution wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go astray. Absolutely. Appreciate the heads up. And once again, congratulations. And thank you, John. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, sir. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little Bay to Nord and the Pot to Plate program that's been proposed by CNL, which basically means giving the harvesters more of an opportunity to take a percentage of the catch, sell it directly to you. The suggested price was $5 a pound, but the harvesters would be able to evaluate whatever price they'd like to charge, more or less. It's an interesting concept. You know, I think there's a move out there amongst harvesters to have more flexibility in how they sell their product. And I got an update from Brenda who called yesterday about the fact that Quincy, Royal Greenland, were not buying crab from the under 40 fleet. That changes on the 4th of this month, so in a couple of days. And I mean, I'm sure that's called comfort for the under 40 fleet that sell at that particular processing plant. But with the big delay in getting at it, the issue regarding trip limits, which was not finalized or negotiated between AS- ASP and the FFA has reared its head for that fleet selling to that plant. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Connie Bike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I guess we're a pair of it this morning with sore throats. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Mine um, kind of came out of nowhere this morning. Yeah, this is uh, this is long lasting for me now. A month, and I'm getting a little part of it. Um, Patty, I'm calling about the um, Miles for Smiles Foundation initiative um, entitled "Kids in the Know Body Safety Program," and uh, I really hope that people won't blaze over when they hear this again. I know there've been a, another couple of calls since Bev Moore Davis launched the program, launched the website on May 24th. In any event, um, the team had a meeting yesterday, and uh, it wasn't as encouraging as we would have hoped, to be honest. Um, So what I want to say to people is, um, first of all, thanks to all the people who voted on the question of the day on Wednesday, which was about this very thing. And I just... I just don't understand why it's not more imperative for the powers that be to see the value in this program. We're the last province in the country 
without this program. It's in place in every other province, in every other territory. Um, Nova Scotia has had it for 14 years. Like, we're really behind the eight ball again. And um, there was a pilot project completed here in Newfoundland already in 18 schools. So, and, um, just hold on a second, Connie, because there are some people who probably don't know what we're talking about. So, okay. what's the, the basics of the program? Okay, so what Kids in the Know is about, it's a body safety program designed for K to 9. It's all age appropriate, and it helps children um, to build on safety skills that their parents are already teaching them in preschool. And it prepares children to uh, identify risks of child abuse, uh, sexual exploitation, bullying, the internet safety that we all need even more than ever right now with the latest studies that have been done around uh, social media harm to children. So I, I'm at a loss to understand why the program hasn't been implemented in every classroom, in every school in this province. Um, we have been promised, we've been working on this for five years. We've been promised each year that it will happen soon, it will happen soon. And now it doesn't seem as though it's going to happen this September. And we're truly disappointed about that. This is an interactive uh, school-based program. It's going to cost less than $25,000 to have implemented throughout the whole province. $25,000, Patty. So it cannot be the cost that's prohibitive to government. It just can't be. Uh, when Bev launched the website on the 24th, it's called Body Safety NL, and it explains the whole program right there on the, on the new website. And at the bottom of the website, it takes 20 to 30 seconds to send a form letter. We'll send it for you if you just uh, click on your MHA's name, and you can send it to multiple ones if you'd like. But to click on your MHA, Jay's name and have the letter sent to them asking for this program. Now, we have done that. There have been thousands of letters sent. Um, we're getting very little feedback. We have heard from some of the MHAs, but not many. So we're really hoping to amp up um, the points of reference, I guess, that people would need to make the decision on this valuable program. I don't understand why in this province we're waiting once again. If we wait another year, for instance, from September of this year to September of 2024, there will be hundreds, hundreds more children at risk in that year. And is that really what we want to do? We could be saving children from possible harm. So for $25,000, we can't do that. Uh, I, I'm not getting it. And Patty, every time that I've talked to you, pretty much, 
we have been using the number of four new cases each day in this province. And I've always used the caveat that that number came from 2012. The numbers on the VPI site were uh, quite dated, but that's the only number we had to work with until recently. And the numbers are not made public. I had to make a special request to get them, so I can't talk about specific numbers. But it's safe to say, since I've been using that outdated four-per-day number since 2012, the numbers have increased more than 200%. And to me, they're just going to keep climbing if we don't get programs like Kids in the Know in every classroom, in every school in this province, and if we don't do it soon. Very quickly before I have to go, Connie, there's a lot of conversation about age-appropriate materials, whether it be yeah. in sexual education or otherwise, but in this, which is, regardless of what people sense on sexual education, to arm children with all of the ability to recognize the warning signs and how to go about when you see a warning sign, what to do about, you know, protecting yourself. There's no one can be opposed to this. So how do we come up with what is age-appropriate? I know that's a tricky question. It might be a bit of a complex question is because it's been evaluated in other jurisdictions where it's in place. I think you said it's been in Nova Scotia for 14 years. So how do we approach the issue of age appropriate in this in this conversation? Well, um, the program was developed uh, through the Canadian Centre for Child Abuse Prevention. And what the program basically starts off is talking about um, what parts of your it's very simple like in terms of kindergarten it it talks about um your body safety in terms of your private uh, spaces and if somebody does or says something to you that you tell somebody it's an encouragement for the younger people to talk about something that makes them feel icky that's the bottom line okay got it and then each year it builds on that it it is an interactive program and uh, the teachers in other places in other jurisdictions they love the program it's really helpful to them the feedback has been phenomenal across the country the feedback from the uh, program that the pilot program that took place here has been positive so we're not understanding now what the obstacles are but suffice to say that each year this information another building block of information is given to these children in k-9 each year and it helps them to develop a sense of uh, personal space uh, safety skills and it just builds on one year after another so we're really you know desperate in this province we have some of the highest rates in the country of mental and physical illness violence homelessness you mentioned that this morning uh, substance abuse addictions you know these children grow up to be at risk of these things that's what 
why we're not connecting the dots. All the children who will be placed at risk now in schools without this information are the people who grow up to be. These children become adults who are more susceptible to addictions, homelessness, death by suicide, all kinds of negative issues, you know, particularly mental health issues. So if we're not going to take this proactive preventative step now, when are we going to take it? It's a fair question. It sounds like a pragmatic program that I don't know who would be opposed to trying to protect children, whether it be with them, because things have changed dramatically over the last, say, 10, 20 years. I mean, not only is it the face-to-face opportunities and the bullying and the potential to be victimized, but lurking around every digital corner is some semblance of evil that is willing to pounce. So, you know, as much as we want to help our children feel like we, we trust them and they have some level of independence, we still owe them every layer of protection and every program that could be part of that should be implemented. Uh, Connie, appreciate your time as usual. Very last word goes to you before I have to go. Patty, if I could just ask everyone, because the responses to the poll question on Wednesday were overwhelming in favor of this program being in schools to teach children body safety. So even if the people who voted on the question could go to bodysafetynl.com and just take that 20 or 30 extra seconds and turn their voices from Wednesday on the poll question to action on this page, it would be really helpful. And if VOCM could question politicians who call in about other subjects, if, if you could question them on their stance, because they've all been informed, they've all been sent letters, they all are aware, or should be, that this is what we're looking for, and we're not looking for pie in the sky. We're looking for $25,000 and a commitment to have this program for the safety of every child in this province. Thank you, Connie. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, a body safety program, because that's much different than some of the other concerns people have t- been talking about with age-appropriate and a variety of levels. But making them aware of what's out there, how to recognize the signs, recognize the risks, uh, risks and what to do about it, sounds about right to me. All right, we mentioned the paramedics off the top of the program. Join us right after the break is Hubert Tall. He's the business manager of Teamsters Local 1855. Myself and Hubert have talked about staffing issues and contractual issues uh, many times over the years. We'll see if Hubert has an update this morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four so we get more to the business manager of the Teamsters Local 1855. That's Hubert Tall. Good morning, Hubert. You're out of the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, uh, great to be here. I'm glad you made uh, you, you brought up this morning about looking for an update of what's happening with the paramedics because uh, apparently our government just doesn't care. On a positive note, I would like to mention that this is Paramedic Service Week in Canada, and I do want to wish you know Happy Paramedic Service Week to all our beweathered and bewildered paramedics that are out there working day in and day out, and you know. Their job is appreciated by the people who use their services, and I mean, I, I want them to remember that as 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 we're moving forward. 
Well, absolutely. And the purpose, you know, it wasn't just to provoke a call from you or from someone in your past you wonder about replacing fuel service or someone in Whitburn talking about Smith's contract going away. But I think if we were already in a place where paramedics, not only the disparity between pay and demands between working for the public or the private sector, the number of paramedics who are choosing to leave the province, the number of areas where we're having a devil of a time to recruit and to retain a paramedic, you know, notably in Labrador, for instance. But this made a lot of sense to me for this consolidation. But we've just kind of heard that and nothing beyond that. So the RFP for the conciliation was released uh, last month, I believe it was, uh, as far as my understanding. And again, I don't have any confirmation on this because we're left completely out of the picture. I mean, we're the largest union representing private paramedics in this province, and we're not part of the discussion. Well, I've been, been, uh, been led to believe that the contracts will be awarded early in this month with a very short time frame to put the plan in place. Okay, so let's pretend this is the table where you could have been heard if you were invited to be part of this process. What are some of the key focus areas that we need to understand? Is it, you know, moving towards some sort of hub-and-spoke model, which might see fewer ambulances, no real uh, meaningful reduction in wait times or for red alerts, or what would you put on the table for consideration at the top of the pile? The, the, the reorganization, the redistribution of our ambulances and, and the purposes of our ambulances. I mean, I, I think the government is aware that our ambulances are not being utilized for their primary function and, you know, under this private system sure. that we're currently working under. This is, uh, you know, it's for-profit. And the way that the contracts have been awarded up to date, it's it's designed that the secondary or the, the you know the non-emergency runs the use of these ambulances make the employers more profit, and there's no deterrent for them not to take an emergency ambulance and go do these secondary runs. You know, I, I hear about these red alerts and how ambulances are not available, but nobody talks about why we're on red alert at this particular time. And a lot of the times, and I've mentioned this before in the past. These ambulances are out doing these secondary or cash cow runs, as this is a term I've been using since the day I sat in this office, to, for to make the employers more profit at the risk and, uh, and expense of the people of this province who require an emergency ambulance. Yeah, I mean, that non-emergency transport, that just seems like the proverbial low-hanging fruit or one of the easy fixes. It's being done in other jurisdictions. They've got it figured out. We don't need to pretend we're reinventing the wheel here. We can simply mimic exactly what others are doing and consequently reducing the number of red alerts for people who are actually experiencing an emergency, a crisis, as opposed to need to get to their appointment. You know, not to diminish the need to get to your appointment, but you might not need a fully trained paramedic staff in a traditional ambulance as we can picture in our mind's eye. So that's an easy one. That's 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 an easy fix. You, know, you are correct on that. You know, then, you know, you mentioned the hub and spoke system. And I think, you know, based on, you know, back when Minister Haggy was in the office, he, he sort of alluded that that was the model that he was he was interested in going towards. And, you know, I, I think that can be effective. Uh, you know, it, it will make definitely make the ambulances more efficient. I mean, we have ambulances out there that probably don't run, you know, two or three calls in, in a month period. You know, using the hub-and-spoke system, it would maximize the efficiency of all those ambulances that we have on the road. But, I mean, you know, in terms of reducing the number of ambulances, I don't think that's, that's going to be viable. Uh, the workload is there. I mean, the paramedics are telling us the workload is there. If you do the ATIP request, you'll see that the call volume is there. You know, we we need to we need to be maximizing the ambulances that we have on the road, but we also got to be minimizing the impact it's having on the people who are providing that service while on the road. Yeah, a hundred percent. Anything else we want to discuss while we got you this morning, Hubert? 
I just got two points I'd like to sure, briefly touch on if I could. Yeah. First one is the Essential Animal Services Act. Uh, the union finally got its application into the board uh, late last week. Uh, you know, as predicted, talks didn't didn't go well between us and the employer, and we just reached a point where we finally said, you know, we have to we have to do some we have to get an answer to this. We have to bring some resolution to this. So we did file that application, and of course. Uh, it was a very tedious process, and I think part of the major problem that arises from this is the government put this bill together so quickly. And, you know, I, I think the real interpretation, the real failure of this now is going to happen over the next, you know, 30 days, because according to the legislation, that's how long the board has to issue a ruling on, on this. So it's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. And, you know, I just, you know, the impact of that, of course, means that our paramedics could be back on strike in, well, 30 days from the date that we put the application back out there. And, I mean, I can't see how this is that, that this move is going to be beneficial to anybody involved in, in this whole system. So where, where are water the sticking point or points? It's. In terms of the services that are going to be provided, I think is the major issues that, that, that's standing out now. Uh, you know, the employer, of course, wants to maintain services that he's providing now, and of course, that to us takes away our, our meaningful right to strike, which is one of the terms that's used in the legislation. And so, I mean, you know, obviously, we, we, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where everything is going to be status quo. Where's the incentive to reach a deal through that process, right? And uh, so, you know, the, the, that's that's probably one of the biggest outstanding points that we have. And then the other really contentious point is we really need a ruling as to if the collective agreement applies to those that are mandated to work. Uh, you know, the employer's position is, no, you can't have a collective agreement in place because the Labor Relations Act says that once you go on strike, your, your collective agreement becomes null and void. But if you have members who have no choice but to work, what protects them in the workplace? So we're, the board is going to, you know, going to have to reissue us a ruling on on that before we get in, or issue a ruling on that before the you know, the decision is made to uh, put this essential ammo service in place. Right? Okay. And for the last point that you wanted to make before I hit news time, it's the signing bonuses that was offered to the paramedics back in December. I'm very disappointed to say that that bonus was reneged from the paramedics in this province. Uh, I'm led to believe it's because the employers actually got, you know, through their greed again, wanted money to be able to administer that money to the paramedics. Now, the government did come up with a replacement program through Grant Thornton. However, most of the paramedics, or not, I don't want to say most of the paramedics, but we had a lot of paramedics who would no longer qualify for this funding under this new program. And I really hope that the government didn't treat the rest of the medical or the health industry the way they treated the paramedics here because they just simply did the paramedics wrong. Yeah, so they did do the same thing or something similar to support workers who were hired during the pandemic. Uh, Very quickly, what changed in eligibility for this money? Uh, When the money was first announced, it was available to every employee. It was going to be a 2% back to April 1st of 2022 and another 2% at April 1st of 2023. Now with the money is gone, it is still a split uh, offering of the money, but the 2% is not added to their wages. It's just a one-off subpayment, which is taxable. And the also with the original plan, there was an optional $2,000 if you wanted to sign on for 18 months. Now, in order to avail of this current plan, you have to sign on for that 18 months in order to get your, your money. And if you didn't do at least one call on the road, you didn't it'd be between January and March of this year. You didn't qualify. So we have students 
who were in school who worked all of last year. If we were given the money back in December when the incentive program was first announced, it would have been on their wages. And then when they come back to work, they would be actually working for 2% more at the end of their schooling. Sure. Now they don't even qualify for that 2% uh, going forward. So, again, like the government has just done, the paramedics and the EMRs and dispatchers of our province wrong when it came to this, this funding. Oh, my. Hubert, I appreciate the update this morning, even though it's not what we needed to hear. But thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Take thank care you. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Super Ty is the business manager. Teamsters Local 1855. All right, we're going to talk a little bait and ord and some fishery right after the newscast. And then, of course, plenty of time on this. Come on with a Friday to talk to you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Good, good, buddy. And just calling in just to uh, just to speak to the Pot to Play program. And I know there's a lot of negativity around the fishing industry this uh, so far this season, and rightfully so. It's uh, we're 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 having a we're having a bad year here, like like many other years. We're facing challenges, but I just want to talk, want to talk about something positive, basically, and. Uh, innovative ways to overcome overcome some of the challenges and some of the rules that divide us as uh, as fleets and sectors and as plant workers basically we're all the we're all one family is just in uh, in a lot of aspects of the fishery we live we live basically miles apart so uh, this pot to play program i think for the uh, for the inshore is a, is a is a real win-win is a win-win for us as uh, as harvesters and is also a win-win for the consumers because we're we're actually we'll, we'll get we'll get a we'll capitalize on our product, and the consumers will are able to buy the product much cheaper than they can go to some of the uh, the loblaws and some of the large corporations and buy the buy our product. So it's uh, I think it's a win-win, and it's uh, basically it's come the, the idea is coming from young innovative talent within the industry, people such as Pam Penton, who's uh, the president of SENL with the Pot to Plate program. Then we have another another young lady, Lil Sal, who's a an active fish harvester and re- really talented, educated, highly educated, and uh, people like Jasmine Paul of Arnold's Cove. This, this is their idea; it's not my idea. And then uh, also people like my daughter, Callie, Callie Everard, and uh, Caden Everard, who's uh, who just started. We, we just started our own business called Callie and Caden Fisheries Incorporated, that are also going to going to take part in this. And we're all working together. We're not competing with each other. We're working together to come up with innovative ways to make us all, all basically coexist as one big happy, uh, happy family, the inshore to offshore, and uh, and the plant workers. I mean, it's uh, for the guys that are actually what 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 we would call or what I would call full-time fishermen. Even though that term disappeared in '97, when one of the uh, shore skippers basically that could operate their their vessel from land for the rest of their life and it's on the designated operator. He removed the term "full-time uh, full-time fisherman" from the uh, provincial legislation and replaced it with a level one or an apprentice, level one and level two fish harvester. So basically, these are the people here that are overcoming some of them old, outdated rules and challenges, and they're adjusting the sails basically and finding new ways to uh, to adapt and let us all coexist as as one team with rules that that help all of us unitedly, not just uh, not just individuals basically. So. I don't know how familiar. I guess you're pretty familiar, Patty, with the uh, with the pot to play program. I know it's getting a lot of attention in the uh, in the media this past uh, this past few months. But basically, what it is is a very small portion of our product 
will uh, will sell locally here, and it gets people down to uh, down to our boats and actually see who's in our small inshore boats because. Unfortunately for us, we most of us, the majority of us on the decks of our boats, we're forced to work outside the fishery. We don't choose to work outside the fishery. We were forced to, and uh, basically, th- this allows us a way to uh, to capitalize and make make the make the inshore fishery uh, profitable and a, a, a attractive option for young people, young young talent like like Jasmine Paul from uh, from Arnold's Cove, or like my daughter, like my daughter Kelly Everett. It certainly don't hurt anyone else. It don't hurt the uh, it don't hurt the the plant workers in the uh, commer- in the commercial plant in the bigger in the bigger plants owned by the owned by the ASP because there's 1.4 million pound of crab basically to be landed here landed here this year and we wouldn't account we wouldn't account for five percent of that selling it locally but what the local product will do will capitalize. I would take the program a little step further myself and I would also I would like to see some of our middlemen plants that ain't allowed ain't allowed to be issued processing licenses maybe they can they, they can cut in on this too and they could buy my crab that i sell today as p for 220 a pound this year maybe they could buy it for three dollars and turn it around and sell it for six or seven locally here a small portion of it to the local markets and uh and that way the people that, that are oicing our crab on the back of their trucks getting paid minimum wage this last 20 years Maybe that can become a uh, profitable job as well. Yeah, be, and, uh, just a couple of things. Be attractive. I, I don't yeah. think there's ever going to be a day where there's going to be different prices uh, allowed for different processors. Uh, but the there is some direct sales available to harvesters. Expanding the percentage of their uh, individual quota to be sold like that to a restaurant, an individual from the back of their truck on the highway, whatever. I mean, some of that makes sense to me, but you say it won't hurt plant workers. It will indeed take some tonnage out of plants. How much that would impact their operations and the number of weeks afforded to plant workers, I don't know because we don't have any real numbers to latch onto here, but I think it makes sense. It makes sense to the harvester. Now, we can't do something that's going to decimate the processing sector, and I don't think this program is intended to do that. But if we're talking about the difference between what the market can bear in the northeastern United States versus what a harvester might be able to get for, in this case, snow crab, wherever it is, alongside of the highway, there's a long way between 5 bucks and 220 a pound. And look, it's going to be a volatile seasonal issue. You know, we're not going to see every single year with $7.15 a pound for snow crab, you know, because things change, and they change very rapidly. But I'd like the sound of this. It'd be nice to have a bit more teeth to it so we can do some more math beyond cocktail, t- uh, cocktail napkin math. Because let's say, if you can sell 5% direct now, but we want to make the move to 20, well, let's do the math on it. You know, even based on simply this year, the 1.4 million pounds that can be landed, I suppose it all will be landed, but there's just not enough there to give it the math to make an argument beyond this is a good idea. No, Patty, I, I would uh, I, w- I would agree with you in, in, one a- in some aspects of it, but the other side is how I, how I see it personally benefiting the plant workers. Like you said, it's not, a, it's not enough. Not not a big enough portion to uh, to put them out of business or put them out of work is a small portion. And what it does, in my opinion, is it stops the monopoly. So if you allow people like myself to become independent owner owner operators, they can sell a lot of our product to the local to the local markets or some. It helps choke the supply, and it makes the, the ASP. They ain't bad people. They're the ones that helped us in the industry this last twenty years. To, or 30 years actually since the mid since the mid mid 90s when we changed to a uh, a fishery here basically I can't speak for other areas but here in Triel I'm very familiar with the fishery and we are solely based on individual quotas are primarily based on individual quotas so what this will do this will make plants 
have to compete as well with us. Our, we'll have a, a product where it's not monopolized anymore. They have to compete, so that way they will, they will be forced to, play, to pay their plant workers a little bit more. They're not bad people. They're just great businessmen. That's uh, if I was running a business, I would I would I would look to hire a loader tomorrow. So I don't I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's great at what he does. It's just we're on the uh, we're on the losing end of it. But I mean once once it becomes once you add a little bit of competition there and you take it away take away the monopoly, it becomes a win win for everyone and all of us. For the offshore boats, the midshore boats, and the inshore boats, and the inshore fishery becomes an attractable option because I don't mean you talked before here in Pity Harbor, one of the largest. Uh, Inshore fishing communities in in the province. We are strictly a uh, under forty foot fleet, or what was traditionally known as an under forty foot fleet. Now we're an under forty nine eleven fleet. But basically, we have one person left that's under forty year old. So anyone, like you said, anyone that's good with numbers, they can see a direct correlation in the apprenticeship program being introduced. An entire generation of fishermen, or would be fishermen, or fisher people, being wiped out. And I mean, this ain't. This ain't the end-all, be-all solution, this pot-to-play program, but it definitely helps take the monopoly out of the industry, and it makes us all compete together because some of these large processors, or ASP now, who in the media we're talking about and we're portraying them as bad people, and we, we sit down together for Sunday dinner sometimes between the offshore, the inshore. We're, we're all from the same families. We all come from big fishing families. Sure, some of, some of us has been successful in business. Some of us has been su- successful in fishing boats. And some of us has been successful in other industries here throughout the province, trades and industries. We're all the, we're all basically the backbone of the uh, of the local economy here in the province, and that's unitedly. That's that's not one one against the other. We're, we're basically in some of our families. We we have we we hold three of those positions, and we are plant workers. So so I, I think there's definitely room for all of us to coexist. If this needs to be managed properly, as has always and long been the case. Uh, Ryan, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Thank you, buddy. Have a good day. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Hopefully uh, Rick can hang tough there through the break. Uh, Rick represents the members of the Unifor Local 20. And, of course, been a lot of reaction to the announcement from uh, Equinor to delay Bader North for up to three years. When it was first announced via email, there was a immediate reaction that was, you know, a devastating blow dealt to the industry. Then we heard from Equinor Canada's uh, presentation yesterday at uh, Energy NL's conference, and seemingly some people were left less pessimistic. We'll see what Rick thinks right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Rick Farrell from Unifor Local 20. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Yes. Uh, good morning, uh, Patty. A uh, really good show going on this morning here. Lots of interesting topics. And uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, offer uh, my thoughts and prayers to all the firefighters and all the people affected uh, by the wildfires uh, in Nova Scotia and Alberta. The visuals coming from both provinces are unbelievable. It is extremely dangerous. You know, when you're sitting so far afield, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around how bad it is. I have friends in both Alberta and Nova Scotia who are keeping me in the loop, and one of them actually is evacuated from their home in Nova Scotia, so pretty dire stuff. So not only do we hope for the best for those who have been evacuated and for others who might be at risk, but absolutely right. For anyone fighting those fires, be safe and good job. Exactly. So I guess I'll start off by saying I guess Wednesday's announcement uh, at the oil and gas conference uh, was a major announcement to say the least. Uh, we're here in Marystown, the Unifor Local 20 Marine Workers Federation. Uh, we keep with offshore services in Marystown in the oil and gas industry for the last 20 plus years. And uh, we've been 20 plus months now counting since uh, our last layoff from our last job for the living quarters uh, for the West, 
White Rose project. And now we're hearing that we could be up to three more years uh, without no potential work. That's a very uh, disappointing uh, piece of news. Of course it is. Like I've, I have to admit, I was kind of caught off guard with the announcement uh, that was made by Equinor. I suppose there's a lot more to it behind closed doors than you or I will ever be privy to. True. And they are talking about the fact that we've been using number $16 billion to build this project. If I read between the lines yesterday, it's way more than that, or that's what they're insinuating, that it's way more than that. So whether it be they think that, you know, he mentions market volatility. I mean, the market is always going to be volatile when we talk about oil. I think what he might be referring to is some of the extraordinary costs associated with inflationary pressure. So we don't really know a whole lot more about why the deal has been paused for up to three years at this point. He did say that benefits agreements negotiations did not sour. That's not why this is happening but not a real firm understanding as to exactly what is going on, simply saying that they'd like to restructure it, make sure they can do it for as, uh, the least amount of money possible and to get it right and all those types of things. But I'm sure for folks who thought that's, that was going to happen, and it might not, and now they say it's not cancelled, but I guess we'll all believe it when we see it if it does indeed happen. But, you know, pauses in mega projects are not unheard of. I'm just a little surprised this one was one. Oh, yes, we were anticipating that it would be starting up possibly in the next year, the first quarter of next year. That was the indication we were getting uh, from our communication with our company, whatever, through the union. And then this three-year delay, you know, three years is amazing. We're two years laid off now. That's a five-year gap between uh, any work coming down here to Marystown at the Keywood Officer Services facility. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much unacceptable. You know, something has to give there for sure. You know, when you look around, like we even speaking with uh, Darren King of Trades and L yesterday, sure. there is a lot of work on the go. And even if all of these projects, whether it be with some of the wind to hydrogen projects and Bay to Nord and the work going on at Polarm on the FPSO and the work going on in Labrador, it seems like the tradespeople are getting some work. How many are out there, even under your envelope at a Unifor Local 20, that this was their next opportunity as opposed to they are all currently working at one project or another? Well, I'd say, well, we have roughly 140 members, uh, and I'd say probably, uh, you know, the younger set of workers, uh, they'd have to go away, of course, to, uh, to maintain their homes and their families, whatever. Uh, but we have 140 workers that we're looking forward to this uh, job uh, for the next uh, two or three years. And uh, with a three-year delay, or hopefully less than that, uh, it's very concerning, to say the least. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, uh, one more comment on the, the Equinor's decision. And, again, I'm not privy. I'm not in the, in the meetings, of course. No. But if they were talking about their break-even uh, number was at 35 bucks a barrel. So even if that $16 billion is $18 billion or whatever the case may be, I'm not so sure how much changes with break-even numbers from 35 If it's $18 billion, then that 35 might be 45 but we're in and around 75 And I don't know what the future holds. I don't have a crystal ball for the price of oil. But it's hard to picture it cratering to $45 in the next however long people want to use for a time frame, 10 years or however many years people think is appropriate? Yes, that's a good point. We also, I guess, uh, the talk of the topside's work or the entire FBSO uh, being built and coming over to New Slam with only the subsea work to be done in the province, uh, that was always a bone of contention uh, sure. uh, with our union and, I guess, trades New Slam as well. So we hope uh, that that hasn't been jeopardized. Sure, hope not. And then, of course, people will rightfully point to the hundreds of millions of dollars that somebody has to pay to the United Nations with that old convention of the law of the sea, which is n- nothing we've ever had to uh, deal with in the past. In fact, if Beta Nord happened, it would be the first time that any project anywhere would fall under that Article 82. So that obviously complicated it somehow. 
The province said that the feds should pay because Canada signed on to that particular declaration, not the province. The feds say that's petty. I'm sure there's possibly been floated that what Equinor might be responsible for on that front, but I know those complications are above my pay grade, to say the least. Uh, yes, one more other item, uh, Patty. For sure. a go, well, we have the, the old Maritown shipyards, you know, that was converted into an aquaculture base uh, back, uh, Mara base, four and a half years ago. Yep. And uh, we were hoping, uh, our union members, that, that that would be up and going by now. Unfortunately, essentially, it's become just a, a salmon feed storage facility, and the lumpfish hatchery that was proposed uh, as of now uh, hasn't begun yet. So that's also a major concern uh, for our members. Yeah, I, I, is there a proposed timeline for that to be the full operation as was originally discussed? Well, we signed a uh, four-year contract uh, back in uh, ratified back in November of 2018. Uh, we're in the fifth year of it now, and uh, it's still uh, been slow going. Uh, there's a lot of other factors going on as well with the cost and supplies and inflationary things we hear from uh, the owner, Paul Antle, of Marabase. And, uh, but, you know, it's only created uh, seven or eight jobs for a bunch of people once a week or once a month, sorry, or six weeks uh, when the salmon feed boat comes from, uh, from overseas. Yeah, maybe we should uh, touch base with Mr. Antle and see if he can come on and talk about prospects for that operation to be expanded as was originally envisioned and uh, articulated. Rick, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else before we say goodbye? Uh, no, uh, thank you for your time, uh, Patty, and uh, have a great day, sir. The very same to you. Thanks, Rick. You're welcome. Take good care. That's Rick Farrell. Yeah. He's Bye. with the Unifor Local 20. So brought up you know, a couple of issues off the top where government doesn't seem to mobilize like they do re you know, reactions to natural disasters. And I talked about food and talked about housing. Here's some numbers coming directly from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the CMHC. Talked about how far we've fallen behind. That organization says that we need to build 5.8 million homes of all types, including rental housing, in the next nine years if we're going to talk about restoring affordability, which is a moving target. Like, for instance, the average cost of a detached uh, home in Toronto, up 2% last month at $1.14 million. Extraordinary stuff. Average price of a home across the country, a single detached home, is in excess of $700,000. Uh, $700, but here's what CMHC says. We need to build 5.8 million homes of all types in the next nine years to deal with an affordability issue. Reality? Canada has built less than 4 million homes in the last 30 years. 570,000 of those are actually rental units. Now, of course, the cost of construction now is certainly having a major impact on people's want and the ability for folks to afford to build a home. So the intervention that government has made, for instance, just here in my neck of the woods, 1,500 affordable housing units to be built. They came in two separate announcements, one of 750, one of eight, uh, 850. So where we are on that, we're not really sure, but just those numbers are staggering. We need to build almost 6 million homes to get back to an affordable uh, landscape, but in the last 30 years, Canada's only built 4 million homes. Remarkable stuff. And also, when I mentioned off the top of the show, I know weather's a bit of a boring topic and always will be. Here's something that's uh, about the 81 years of keeping weather records for the city of St. John's from 1942 to today. This year is the 31st time that St. John's has not recorded a 20-degree day by the 31st of May. The latest 20-degree uh, day was July the 4th of 1943. Other latest years, in 2019, it was the 22nd of June. 1959, the 18th of June. 1975, it was the 16th of June. And that was also happened in 1968 as well. All right, uh, let's check in now to the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. And I bring up the housing issue because... 
you know, when we have very lofty goals and targets set in immigration, for instance, and it's not just immigration that's played a role in this housing affordabil affordability issue and or access to housing, but it's part of the conversation. So where's government action on that front? They talk about cost of living. You can send me a $500 check or you can give me a one-time bump in GST that's supposed to be some sort of grocery rebate. All of those things really speak to very, very short-term epitome of Band-Aid versus the long-term affordability issues that Canadians, outside of the muckety-mucks and the very top one, two, three, four, however many percent, are struggling mightily. Let's take a break. When we come back, protected areas. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the co-chair at WERAC. That's Graham Wood. Good morning, Graham. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? That's about, I suppose. How about you? Good, good, good. Dirty that, old day out here in Central. Yeah, but brutal here. Right. Let's break down the acronym because it's a long one. It's the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council, WERAC. Exactly. Okay, let's go. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, the minister made an announcement last week on the 25th uh, of May uh, announcing that uh, we're going to be moving ahead uh, on phase two uh, consultations uh, for 10 proposed reserves. None of them are in the plan, a home for nature. And one of them was one that was already, uh, you know, we've had two public hearings already uh, in Indian Arm Brook and Central Newfoundland. So we're very pleased that, uh, you know, we're starting the process. We know it's not all of them, but, you know, you can only we only have so many staff and, and so much time. So hopefully we can move ahead on these 10 now. Uh, two of them are on the Avalon in Ripple Pond and Hall's Gullies. And uh, two are in Northern Peninsula. Uh, those particular ones relate to, uh, you know, relate to uh, Cape Norman and Watts Point Extension, which are, uh, limestone ones, as well as uh, Cape St. George is a limestone area, too. We're concerned about that. As you know, there was proposed development taking place in those reserves, and we've written the minister to, uh, and and uh, in terms of the EA aspect with uh, GH2, uh, to uh, please not to develop any windmills in those particular in those particular habitat areas that are proposed for the ecological reserves in Cape St. George. So of Stony Lake, Con River North, uh, Fushu Bay, which are related to uh, our consultations uh, with Mapakek, and uh, certainly uh, Rodney Pond uh, came up also with uh, Halapu. Uh, Charlie's Place is not included in that, but uh, that will uh, hopefully that will move ahead as we uh, look at uh, making a recommendation to the minister in the future. And uh, Indian Iron Brook is the last, really. Are there any areas that were identified in your report to government that actually have applications inside this 1.7 million hectares of crown land for wind projects? Well, the only one that we really, re, uh, really knew about was the one to GH2, which they had planned to actually build some turbines in uh, within the proposed uh, ecological reserve. But subsequent to that, we wrote the letter to the minister asking him to uh, not to approve any development within the proposed reserve of Cape St. George. And my understanding is that um, Mr. Uh, Risley did indicate that he did, would not be building any uh, any turbines or planning to build any turbines within the proposed ecological habitats that were in danger or that were to be, uh, you know, uh, threatened. 
What exactly is involved in the second phase you say we're moving to? Well, the second phase is really a consultation. So what we'll do is go to the communities, meet with the various stakeholders, community councils, uh, um, public interest groups, uh, just like we did in phase one, really. And uh, But now with uh, COVID, uh, you know, hopefully over with, uh, we should be able to hold, uh, you know, uh, direct consultations within the communities and kind of look at a plan for those areas and to see if there's any adjustments that would be made to the boundaries or uh, to any and, and management issues of those particular areas. So it, it's it's really the second stage of development of a proposal to the minister and obviously the cabinet for approval for uh, ecological reserves to be formally, you know, be formally uh, say, uh, an order in council or whatever, formally set up. And, of course, WERAC is simply an independent advisory board, don't have the ability to mandate any of these protected areas or any movement. That's all in the hands of Cabinet once you produce your report. Yes, absolutely correct. Uh, we're only a voluntary group, uh, people stretching from Labrador to Newfoundland. And, and uh, you know, Labrador is still another issue, really, in terms of... Uh, moving ahead on protected areas there many years ago over 20 let's say 23 24 years ago we looked at some areas in labrador like lock joe and we did consultations up there with various uh, indigenous groups so those are a whole different set of negotiations obviously related to uh, you know the inu land claims and and uh, to avoid the new nazi books which com- complicates it even a little bit further no doubt uh, anything yeah. else you want to tell us about this morning graham no, I, th- I think it's really important that, uh, you know, we're moving ahead. Uh, we're pleased with the minister and, and government making the decision to move ahead on 10. Uh, there are 32 in the in the plan, the Home for Nature. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's going to take time, Patty. And, uh, and then hopefully over the next uh, two, three years, we'll be able to do these consultations and get moving on this because really we're only at 7.5%. Uh, even including these uh, these new 10 reserves, we've been only at 7.5% when the goal of the government of Canada and Newfoundland, uh, multiple governments in Newfoundland have uh, wanted to be at 2020, 17% by 2020 and 25% at 2025 and 30% by 2030, which is the goals of, of the governments in Canada to reach protected areas. Uh, you know, uh, their mitigation to climate change, uh, and and one thing about it, you know, that's important for people in the province uh, to know is that, you know, these protected areas will be tourism, you know, uh, as we go forward. I mean, we need to be able to protect those eco regions, ecosystems and uh, and look look for uh, you know good uh, good potential tourism potential in the future absolutely and you know people will kind of scoff possibly at things like biodiversity but look at other places in this world where they do very little to nothing to protect areas and what it's meant for biodiversity which has an impact on human beings if people want to actually sit back and understand the issue then it'd rather be cultural issues opportunities for education opportunities for research these are things that matter it might be yeah. important to you to have access to the area that that you've always had with your quad or your hiking boots, the berry pick or the haunt or to to do whatever, uh, most of which will not be jeopardized by these moves. But there is a long-term sustainability plan, whether you incorporate 25 years, 35 years, whatever time frame you want to use. It just makes sense to be on the right side of this because once you make the wrong decisions, once you leave things unprotected, waterways or otherwise, we see what happens. And there, in many circumstances, there's no coming back. You're absolutely correct. And I think one thing you realize is that uh, 
you know, during COVID, a lot of people, you know, didn't get together with other people, but they did go out on the land. And they did go out and see many, many parts of Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, in smaller groups and really get to appreciate uh, the beauty of this province. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think that's important in terms of the long term to make sure that we protect it for our children and grandchildren uh, and, and to maintain this beautiful people come here. Why do they come to Newfoundland and Labrador? They come to see the environment and to meet the people. That's a big part of it. I mean, there's going to be maybe a UNESCO site, maybe a culinary scene, maybe you want to see an iceberg, maybe you want to jig a cod, whatever it is. But the categories yep. you mentioned are absolutely part of how people determine whether or not this is where they like to spend their vacation dollars. Uh, good to have you on the show, Gray. Appreciate the time. Yeah. So we encourage the people, once we start the consultations in, uh, in the fall, uh, we encourage the people to come out and stakeholder people who want to have a say about this and uh, to get out and, and uh, issue their, uh, you know, their opinions on protecting this province. 100%. Stay in touch. Take care. Thank you very much, Patty. Right. Have a great day. You too. Great weekend. Bye-bye. You too. Graham Wood, he's co-chair at Rack. Let's go. Line number one. Tina, you're on the air. Hey, how are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Good, thanks. I'm calling just to following up yesterday's discussion on the um, LGBTQ uh, plus community. And uh, just a little background on myself. My uh, formal training is in psychology, and I worked with uh, the social determinants of health in British Columbia for a decade uh, and was a researcher with the University of British Columbia and worked with large organizations out there, uh, provincially and nationally and internationally. And so um, uh, that's my professional background. And personally, I am the parent of a person in the queue in the uh, queer community and have best friends that date back 30 years in the queer community. So I bring a balance of both professional and personal experience to the discussion. And yesterday, it was really interesting to listen to uh, the various people who were calling in. It was wonderful to hear the allies, and it was also wonderful to hear people who were calling in and sharing their questions and trying to understand what exactly is happening within the queer community. And um, I wanted to thank you because um, I heard you handle certain discussions um, wonderfully. And I think it's fantastic that you are talking about Pride Month starting yesterday. And I hope you continue to talk about it every day throughout the month because it's a really important topic. And like you said yesterday, um, people have questions. And um, I think it's great that they're calling in, even though it could be triggering for some people. And it could be really difficult for some of us to hear some of the things that people are saying. It's obviously you know, some fear involved and some anxiety involved. But um, I'm optimistic because I think that, um, you know, the way you handled everything yesterday shows a lot uh, in what direction that we're evolving into. And um, one of the things that was mentioned yesterday um, by one of your callers was that she had mentioned that um, it was fear-mongering to talk about the violence that this community endures. And and I'm here to say that, no, uh, that's actually very true. And in fact, the transgender community um, received the highest amount of violence. And not only that, but they're dealing with things like uh, major depressive disorder and high suicide rates. So it's 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 pretty serious. And the more that we have these open, um, understanding, 
questioning conversations, the more that things can evolve. And we are evolving as a society, and our systems need to catch up to that. And certainly research is um, creating new ways to capture a variety of these issues, and we'll continue to evolve in that way. Um, But I think by having these kinds of forums through open line and other things, this is why it shows that the Pride Month is so important because it 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 brings it to the forefront. And even if people don't understand or even if people have biases or fears, the discussions are happening. And I think that's so, so important because, as you know, the more educated we are about various topics, the more we can open our hearts and minds and evolve as a society. So I just wanted to... Um, to call and say thank you and just kind of chime in with my both professional and personal experience there. Uh, And thank you for that. You know, it is an extremely different uh, conversation to have, especially on live radio, but that's what I signed up for, so so be it. My general concern here is, well, I guess I would have many, but what unfortunately happens far too often here is that an opinion is formed it becomes staunch and it doesn't really reflect maybe what's actually happening in the world versus what you think might be happening versus what your friends or your political leanings think is happening and consequently what we've done or what has been happening is that entire segments of society get painted with the same brush entire segments of society get demonized at the exact same time for things that are just not real so you know, someone told me I was uh, sat on the fence on it all day yesterday when I thought when it was any sort of anti or phobia being described. For me, it's, you know, a trick to try to discern whether or not that was as a misinformed or uneducated or hateful. And they're all three different things. And that, for yeah. me, guides how the conversation should go. And quite clearly, I wasn't on the fence. I think what I think. I say what I think. But I don't need to engage in jumping down your throat or ripping you apart to have a conversation because what happens when that happens is there is no conversation, which is the worst That's outcome. Right. Yeah, and and all it does is exasperate the divisiveness anyway. And, and, you know, we have seen politically and in other ways, there's been a lot of divisiveness the last few years, and it's really, really unfortunate to see it happen that way. Uh, And, like, even yesterday I saw on the news, you know, Uganda has brought in these anti-gay legislation there. And so there are things happening all over the world to this community that's really painful to watch. And they're not the only community that the divisiveness is. Um, you know, impacting, but we're talking about Pride Month here. And so, um, you know, I thought yesterday, I know you were put in a very, very difficult position yesterday. And some of the callers, yes, absolutely. You know, unfortunately, it was fear mongering. Either they had heard from somewhere else or, you know, their mind just starts to sort of wander and ends up down that rabbit hole. Um, but the way you handled that yesterday was very professional. It, you were really put in a tough spot. Uh, you know, a lot of allies called in and supported the community, and we, we are here. We love you. We see you. You know, you need to hear that from us, too, when you hear these other very difficult, triggering, um, uh, you know, perceptions. What I'm optimistic about, though, is as difficult as these conversations are, we need to have them. And as difficult as it is for you to be put in that position um, and try to regulate and try to moderate and sort of navigate the waters of these really, really tricky spots here, I think over time, just like anything, when status quo is threatened, 
You know, women got the vote at one point in time. It was a terrible thing. Women were working. It was a terrible thing. Uh, you know, different racist, you know. There's so many things that have happened in our world, but our society evolves and it gets better. You know, so this has been a really rough few years for people. And, you know, rather than buying into the divisive uh, rhetoric that's been happening in the media or, you know, through politics or religions, wherever it's happening, step back from that, you know, and you have a heart, you have a mind and research things, think about things, ask questions. This, This community is very open, you know, and ask questions respectfully and listen to what people have to say. But from my perspective, I can understand why people might say you're sitting on the fence, but, you know, you're in a position here publicly that you have to really walk a tightrope there. And I thought it was a really difficult position. You were in there a few times yesterday, and and you did handle that well. And so be it. And I, look, I'm not all about go along to get along, because I think what I think. I'm not afraid to say it, and people can disagree with it. I'm not here trying to please everybody, because that's a fool's errand if there ever was one. That's right. You know, it's a tricky conversation but I, I'm the last person who should complain because I signed up for it and so yeah. be it. Regardless of what people want to talk about from whatever angle we'll take it on and try to have it a, a reasoned conversation if possible and if not we'll cross that road when we come to it. That's right. If it gets too far you shut it down. You know and, and yes yesterday it would have been too far for certain people definitely. It, it had to be difficult to hear. It was hard for me as a mom to hear some of these things but you know I also understand that as human beings, any change, that's just the psychology of human beings, Uh, change that happens uh, in a way that people don't understand, they question it and they resist it. And, you know, and so a lot of negativity happens up front. But over time, the more things are, I love when I walk through different places in the city and I see flags and I see representation that I know my family or my friends can walk in there and know that it's a safe place for them, you know? So the more that that's out there, I think over time, you know, more and more people will come to understand. And I think it will turn into a much smaller population of people that would have that extreme point of view. We'll see what the future holds. I appreciate the time this morning, Tina. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go and take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're lucky that we've got Kim Beers in the queue. She's the chair of Ganner's Housing and Homelessness Network. We talked about a story this morning where some people were given winter emergency shelter in hotel rooms, and now the hotels want those rooms back to prepare for the high, the peak of the tourism season. So we'll hear from Kim after this, and then we're going to be speaking about uh, what's going on in Mount Pearl. Maybe several things. We know that as of yesterday, the speed cameras came to pass. It came to pass. Uh, were uh, active, I believe, in Mount Pearl and Paradise. And also about economic development, some of the choices Mount Pearl has made to not join forces with Paradise, CBS, and St. John's in a collaborative affair. We'll hear from Mayor Dave Aker as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the chair of the Gander Housing and Homeless Hub, and that's Kim Beers. Good morning, Kim. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate you giving some time to uh, allow me to speak this morning. I'm happy to do it. So the news story today, of course, will be of major concern to you. And this is something that we knew was probably very likely coming. And it's the fact that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 people have been staying in hotel rooms throughout the winter as, I guess, some form of sustainable or, pardon me, some uh, emergency shelter, which, of course, it sounds good in short term, but there's nothing sustainable about it. What do we know that's happening? 
Yeah, that's right. So really, it ballooned over the last couple of months. Um, there wasn't that many staying in hotels here in the area um, because when you call the emergency, you know, shelter line, um, they look at trying to place you somewhere. But as we've spoken on Open Line before, we don't have any emergency shelter here in Gander at all at this point. So essentially, the hotels were used to be, you know, for emergency purposes, but we have lots of issues that we've also previously discussed around the lack of rental spaces around here in Gander for various reasons. And so therefore those people who have been in an emergency shelter situation at the hotel have yet to be able to find a place to live in this area. So therefore now the hotels who are not set up to be of course the shelter space anyway, um, have said, well, we're booked up for the tourist season, so we, you we, you can no longer use our facility. Um, so therefore, it uh, has left a lot of people in the, not knowing where to where to go from here. Yeah, I mean, I've received a couple of emails since I brought it up off the top saying, well, the hotels simply don't want their guests to be mingling amongst homeless people. And I'm like, Boys, you know, can we just focus in on why people are without a roof over their head? Because business yeah. motivation, I'm not in those rooms, so I don't know. People's opinions might be right, but whatever. Uh, speaking to the minister responsible, John Abbott, talk about the fact that they interviewed everybody in an effort to find out exactly what their issues were, what their future looks like, and to find them a place to go. How does that process even work? Um, well, I think it was because based on the number that have been here from the hotline that had come had been housed here in the hotels. So because we were they were given a date when the hotels were no longer going to be, you know, uh, ongoing source for emergency shelter, then they met with all of those individuals that were in the hotel at the time using it for shelter. And since that time, actually, um, I don't know if they've had personal contact with a number of people because I know there's some that have been have found places but some that haven't. And of course, there's still new people uh, that find themselves without a place to live, um, you know, in the last few days since all this happened. So, you know, the, the number fluctuates daily. And um, yes, I mean, there are social workers that are engaged, but they come out of St. John's mostly. So, um, you know, so the people here on the ground are the ones that really have to deal with um, the complexities and the issues that uh you know, surround those who are finding themselves homeless. And I just want to piggyback on what you said earlier. Some people don't want the homeless there, but they don't understand that sometimes people are without homes because people have sold their homes and they have evicted people because they don't have, a, you know, their their rental property is no longer available for whatever reason. Sure. It could be someone who's an employed person who they're not necessarily people who have complexities that are, you know, out of the ordinary. It could be a simple family who may be employed here in town, but just, you know, for whatever, out of their own control, don't have their own house and don't have control over whether they can stay in their apartment or not any longer, maybe due to, to an increase in rent and they just can't afford to pay it anymore. So, you know, there's multiple things that come around, the reason why people are homeless. So it's not just because people choose their destination kind of thing. I, I totally get it. The point I was making, obviously quite clumsily, was like other areas of life, what people sometimes think automatically when we talk about the fact that someone is homeless is that they're a vagrant, is that they've yeah. got some of these complex addiction or mental health issues. When somebody who might be homeless, based on the reasons that you just offered, which is why if, 
now not every person who's homeless is in the exact same set of circumstances. So Absolutely. in combination here with the lack of affordable housing in the area or rental units and no emergency shelter, of course, some of the 40, they may indeed be not homeless if there was more rentals or more affordable option to get into a house. But we are going to Absolutely. need an emergency shelter regardless. Because, Absolutely right. You know, because even if we use hotels, if that 40 became 20, 20 hotels is still not sustainable regardless of what the number is. So an emergency shelter, there seems to be some willingness, or am I overstating Minister Abbott's thoughts on the potential for an emergency shelter? Yes, we have been working. And actually, um, so our working group on housing here has been working diligently on a property that he mentioned yesterday in the article that came out this morning. Um that you know, there are some viable options here in Gander for buildings that are would be ideal locations for certain housing. So we're hoping that we're going to continue to partner alongside uh, NLHC along with the town to find and allocate particular places so that we can have, and not only just so an emergency place, but looking at multiple levels of what housing can look like. So sometimes we might just have a single person who's looking for a temporary place for a particular time because they may be in school or for whatever reason that we can offer something more on a temporary basis. Um, so like a bed sitter or a boarding place kind of thing. And also to look at the increase in affordable housing units, whether it be rental properties or whatever, that we can look at and work towards providing more places so that people don't have to move outside of the area. Yeah. Uh, do we happen to know if there's many people moving into the community that find themselves, for one reason or another, homeless, or is it a uh, homegrown issue inside Gander proper, or what do we know? Because here in this city, it seems that there's a lot of people who are moving to urban centers, whether it be proximity to more supports and services, which you obviously will be able to get in the capital city versus more rural, remote parts of the province. So do we know much about how the numbers are growing in Gander? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. For some of that is support. So like we, I know that there are a number, like if you look around here now compared to what it was maybe 10 years ago, the number of seniors' cottages and that kind of thing, even our uh, personal care homes have, have expanded. So there's more elderly moving into because there's supports from the hospital, regional authority that way. But also we have a number of people who've come here, of course, the supports that are needed to run those facilities. Some of them are coming from away, um, as in they're not native to Gander. Or we even have some people who've been moved away from Gander who may be coming back to work here because they have now employment back here. So we're running into all kinds of different things. I mean, one thing we haven't really talked about, too, is the increase increase in airbnbs and areas and that kind of thing talking about tourism because you know if you're a homeowner and you can get more out of a, a certain space in your in your house compared to a rental then that's also happening so there's various reasons why there are you know a lack of uh, affordable places for people to go yeah I like most issues that are growing. The issue is complicated, right? And, it is, absolutely. Yeah, and complicated means that you just need, you know, more than 100,000 feet above sea level headline stuff. You really got to start to grapple with the nuances because without that, then we're, you know, we're creating more bad policy, more good money chasing bad money, and probably not having the desired outcomes. So I appreciate the work that you're doing, Kim, with you and your group at Gander's Housing and Homeless Network. Anything else you'd like to add before we take a break for the news? 
No, thank you. I really appreciate I know that this has been a, at least it's being highlighted once again because we've seen an increase and we do want to make sure that the services that people require are uh, going to be here. We want people to not move away from the community. We want them to experience a good life here in Gander and um, whatever it takes to try to make it possible with, um, we're committed as a group um, to make it happen. So uh, it's it, like you said, it's not a quick fix. It's going to take some time and lots of uh, thinking and processing and money, but uh, we're hopeful that things will change in the future. And this pressure now, um, I think, will ho- help get the ball rolling quicker rather than longer term. Let's hope so. Thank you for your time this morning, Kim. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. As Kim Bears, she's the chair of the Gander Housing and Homeless Hub. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, let's wrap up the show by speaking with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Dave's just setting us up with uh, the mayor of the city of Mount Pearl. That's Dave Baker, of course, as we advertise before going to the news. So let's do exactly that and go to line number two and say good morning to his worship, Dave Aker, the mayor of the city of Mount Pearl. Mayor Aker, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind, sir. Thanks for making time. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much. So right off the bat, I think you were attending an infrastructure announcement this morning. I haven't had a chance to follow along because I'm doing this. So what was the announcement about? Well, the announcement this morning, we had in attendance, we had the Premier along with uh, Minister O'Regan and uh, local MHAs, members of council. Uh, we witnessed the announcement of the completion of the uh, Team Gusha Highway. So there's a lot of elation associated with that, Patty, especially here in Mount Pearl, because currently all that traffic headed to the southern shore to and from, say, areas like the Avon Mall, the Confederation Building are going through the city of Mount Pearl. So that's really, really good news at the end of the day. I understand, uh, you know, the RFP for consulting, engineering consulting services will go out shortly. They're hoping to issue tenders over the winter and likely, um, likely start construction sometime next year. So uh, it's good news, actually, at the end of the day, not just for the city of Mount Pearl, but for the region as a whole. Well, I hate to be down in the mouth about anything, but it's been a bit of a farce since day one, the whole Team Guzhu and its extension. I had an interesting call on this one, Mayor Aker, is whether or not there was a real comprehensive traffic flow assessment done, because this is a feel-good, as I wonder what it will mean realistically or pragmatically on the ground with just how much congestion it loosens up on various highways and byways. But it's getting done, and it's about time, whether or not it's the right way to spend money. I'll leave that up to individuals, but... People are clamoring for this to be completed, and finally, after all these years, it will be. Uh, let's move off into the speed camera business. And look, it doesn't matter to me where the speed cameras are. If we're going to put a pilot in place and see what it does, we do know that the minister responsible, Sarah Studley, says that data from other jurisdictions say it reduces speed by some 30 to 50 percent. Consequently, that speaks to public safety. How did the selection process work for your community? your city, and Paradise to be selected, because by the time St. John's heard about it, it was apparently too late. So how did that work? Well, I guess not everybody can participate in a pilot. Otherwise, it, that's you know that's called full implementation. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. But the pilot, you know, we had reached out, uh, I'm thinking about two years ago, we had a presentation from a vendor um, who sells or leases and ministers these cameras, but uh, naturally the, you know, the regulations um, all had to be uh, taken on by the, uh, by the province. And uh, the town of Paradise, I believe, had similar conversations. So at the end of the day, the minister had the difficult task of picking a couple of communities. And, and, and I think I think, you know, there's, there's two reasons for that. I think uh, 
we want to have uh, we want to share the experience between our municipality and the municipality of Paradise uh, in the whole process. And, and they have different traffic issues and different speeds. And so, so we both picked three locations based on some of the radar data that we'd already collected. And we're running simultaneous pilot pilots uh, here in the city. We're doing three. We're doing Michener Avenue, Black Marsh Road, and then Park Paradise are doing three as well. We're not doing them in an identical way. We're just doing them so that we can compare data uh, between the two municipalities at these different types of, um, uh, of streetways or roadways, if you will. Um, and we're also then going to be starting to compare, and this is the key. When we start the project, which was yesterday, we gather the data. As the project evolves and the notices go out to people who own cars that were, so to speak, caught speeding, uh, as they're notified, we're looking to see does the behavior change, much like the minister's been uh, briefed, and so are the two the two mayors and the two communities. Does speed get reduced? That's the key at the end of the day. It's not about ticket revenue. It's more about making sure our streets are safer than ever. Yeah, that that's an interesting component with no tickets this year, simply a warning letter to be sent to the offender. But you mentioned the speed radars, and for me, they're one of the best traffic calming measures we have. You know, speed bumps and bump out curbs and those types of things. But when you see a radar alongside the road that says your speed is 56 and you're in a school 30 zone, was there a way to capture that information to compile this data without the need for a pilot project inside of speed cameras proper? That's one thing that confused me a little bit. You're right. You know, we have the existing technology. Uh, we do need to access uh, driver records, though, or car ownership records in order to send the feedback. Um, with those radar signs, they're they're effective, but mostly effective when they first get implemented. Um, people tend to slow down when they see their speed, and then, frankly, Patty, they tend to gun it afterwards, you know, put the pedal down to the metal, so to speak, and, and take right off. What we're trying to do is change behavior. So the fact that um, residents are aware that there are speed cameras in play and they're actively being used, we're hoping to change. We're trying to change behavior, but not just behavior in the moment when they encounter the, uh, you know, the radar zone, so to speak. We're trying to change the mindset all told, right? So that's kind of the difference. We have to get our feedback to those people who are speeding. Um, for the rest of us who are doing fine, you know, uh, living by the, uh, you know, the speed limit, uh, you know, there's no need really to provide any uh, any further commentary it's it's the people who are speeding and we need to reach out to and we see this is one of the ways that we've uh, witnessed in other jurisdictions so the province had to uh, allow this via legislation or amendments there too what's the community's role in monitoring installation or anything because i think i also heard minister studley say about the workload afforded to your community and to mayor bobbitt in paradise so what exactly does your city have to do here well, we'll be capturing the information and the data and assembling it in the format that ultimately can be passed up uh, through to the provincial government. And naturally, it would have to go through, uh, you know, fines administration, uh, collections. You know, there's a big role here for the Department of Justice to ensure that um, not only do we hold people accountable, but how do we go about doing that? In other jurisdictions, there's issues with the um, how do you know who is driving, you know, the vehicle. So those things have to be worked out. Uh, all as part of the pilot project, and uh, mm. without without talking about volumes at this point in time, because we've only got really one day behind us. Uh, yeah. But how you gather and transmit that information, Patty? I'll just I'll just put it in round numbers. If you've got hundreds of violations, you can probably set it up on a spreadsheet and upload it to some system. If you have thousands, for example, and I'm talking over a, you know, a long period of time, how you transmit that data back and forth uh, will require an investment 
And the question is, do you invest in human resources or you want to be investing in technology? So part of this is uh, not just understanding the, the volume of traffic that's going through these zones, but also the uh, ultimately in the long run with the change of behavior, what ultimately will be the, uh, I guess, the volume of people who are going over the limit. Yeah, and most other jurisdictions, they don't care who's driving. <laughs> it's your car. It's your responsibility. You should know who's behind the wheel of your rig. And if you're loaning it to someone, you take your chances. Uh, last, A couple of quick ones on speed cameras. Sure. So will there be signage to acknowledge that you're entering one of these speed camera capture zones? Because in places where I've driven where that is the case, there is a sign that says you are now entering. Consequently, you get a bit of a heads up to slow down, even though we're not trying to give people, you know, leeway to only speed when convenient. But are, are there signages, signs required? Yeah, fundamentally, we have put signs up. Uh, for privacy uh, reasons, you have to do that today. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it makes sense. You need to give people a heads up that they're uh, being monitored, but monitored for the purposes only of of speed and safety. You know, you can't go, for example, using any of those images for any other reason. Um, so you have to state they're in uh, uh, they're in play where they are and also what they're being used for. Otherwise, you know, I guess you could think of that as spying, for example. Yeah, although I don't, I wouldn't personally have a problem if it uh, captured images of you on your phone while you drove either. So, you know probably as big or bigger a problem when we talk about road safety. Last one on that, then I want to talk about economics. So uh, also, Parcel Cove St. Phillips is implementing some peace officers or bylaw officers that are going to be able to deal with speeding, passing school buses, distracted driving, what have you. With the concern that you and Mayor Bavda have voiced, is that something you're entertaining? Well, our, our municipal enforcement officers do have the same powers uh, currently. Uh, okay. We can issue tickets, yeah, for both violations of certain um, pieces of the Highway Traffic Act, as well as wherever we as a municipality put in um, uh, signage, for example, for stop signs, uh, traffic lights, and like we already have that power to do it. Um, okay. So we, we debated incrementally, what is the best move going forward in terms of promoting and achieving more traffic safety in the city? We feel the, the, the speed cameras are the way to go on top of what we're already doing. So we're not going to back off, you know, having our officers uh, patrolling, you know, school zones and issuing tickets where appropriate. We think this is a uh, an additional resource that's a good fit for what we're doing currently. And, uh, you know, other municipalities may follow suit at the end of the day. I think they've made the right move. Um, you know, it's very difficult today. Um, you know, for to, to manage traffic and maintain safety without some of your own, um, without some of your own employees or somebody in your jurisdiction who you can actually use and utilize uh, in the best interest of your community. The RNC do a great job in the region. They've got their hands full with a lot of forms of crime and the like, uh, and they're very active working with us as well and other municipalities with speed. So we see this as an incremental uh, piece for the city of Mount Pearl, and we applaud what they're doing at Portia Club St. Phillips. They're kind of, in a way, they're following our lead. Fair ball. Uh, last one. So there were four communities, the big four in the Northeast Avalon, St. John, CVS, uh, Paradise, and Mount Pearl, at a table to talk about creating the Regional Economic Development Agency. You were there until almost the bitter end, then decided that your Mount Pearl tax dollars are better focused uh, separately from this group. 
Now, fair enough, and you'll make your own decisions. And, you know, there is still going to be a nature of competition inside collaboration here. But what exactly are you doing that might be different than what those other three communities are doing, whether it be attracting business or forward capital or Ocean Tech? And actually, we're going to talk Ocean Tech right after this as well. So what are you doing that might be different than what those three communities are doing? Yeah, we're focused on a plan we call Find Your Center, which is the uh, the redevelopment, the creation of a different type of city within the core of Mount Pearl. Um, because Mount Pearl is surrounded by neighboring municipalities and you know the the so-called worry or issue about running out of land has been brought up but we see it as an opportunity but frankly patty we're going to have to grow grow up i don't mean that in the immature sense we're just going to have to grow up you know in the future with more density here in the city so we're focusing on that plan and our economic development team they've won awards with regards to working with our business community and working with our uh, with our residents, and so that three hundred and fifty thousand dollars that we want to put into economic development, we're taking more of a micro approach. Whereas uh, the other three municipalities are looking at a, a broader picture, a more macro approach. They're they're going to set up an organization. Um, they're going to incur salaries and the like for administration. We weren't quite there. We didn't think that was going to get some direct benefits. And as part of the consulting piece that we did, uh, the four uh, municipalities with the assistance of ACOA, the consultant that we hired, the question was asked, you know, when will you see, when will you be able to know if there's any direct benefits? And the, the answer comes back is, well, you never probably will. You'll never know directly. You may know indirectly, but it may take a lot of time. Um, so we didn't see there was a reason for um, a municipal organization to be set up, um, and naturally you'd want to work together with the province. Some of these issues with regards to ocean technology and the like, and the regional economic development in that sense, they're provincial issues. And you know we're still going to work together with the city of St. John's, the towns of Paradise, and CBS. Uh, if a project comes up that's worthwhile for the region and the city of Alberta, we're certainly going to be there. But we weren't interested in setting up a, a new organization and funding the infrastructure administration that was required. Yeah, because there's already plenty of cooperation on the Northeast Avalon on a variety of fronts, wastewater and what have you. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Aker. Thank you, sir. Patty, thanks. Have a great weekend. You See too. you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Mayor David Aker in the city of Mount Pearl. Okay, break time, but thanks to $154 million from Canada's first research excellence fund, they've now created research teams to talk about transforming climate action, addressing the missing the missing ocean. So researchers from Dalhousie, the Université de Québec à Rimouski, and the Université Laval, allez, rouge or. And, of course, researchers from Memorial University, including our next guest, Dr. Tyler Eddy. He's a research scientist at the Marine Institute. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Dr. Tyler Eddy. He's a research scientist with the Center for Fisheries Ecosystems Research at the Marine Institute, and he's part of that program, as mentioned. Good morning, Dr. Eddy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How's it going? Couldn't be better. And I want to apologize to the listeners for my little yelp regarding L.A. Rouge York just because my boy played varsity at Laval. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> let's get into this. So, I mean, it's a pretty interesting story that I read in the Gazette. And right off the top, it says the solution to one of the biggest global issues may be found here at home. What are you working on? Yes, so basically this is a, a huge project that brings uh, 170 different scientists together to try to understand uh, you know, what the role of carbon is in kind of uh, climate change. And so there's a, a whole number of different kind of aspects to this big project. But um, so we're trying to kind of understand how the oceans play the role in uh, the carbon budget, which uh, influences climate change, and then uh, which goes along with it. And, you know, some of the opportunities that will be uh, available here 
are all of the kind of the science applications that we do in order to try to uh, have this better understanding. So whether or not, you know, that's a technology, the different um, instruments that we put out in the water, uh, all of the different analysis from this data that we collect, and then, you know, contributing that to this understanding of how um, Newfoundland and Labrador's waters play a really important role in the global carbon budget. I don't pretend to know a whole lot about carbon capture or sequestration of carbon. And, of course, all technologies are not created equal, even when we talk about the fossil fuel industry or otherwise. But inside the oceans, is the carbon created by just photosynthesis, whether it be with zooplankton or phytoplankton or along those lines? Or help me understand. So, I mean, that's one aspect of it. But um, what we're really thinking about here is that the... uh, the oceans act as a buffer. So there's mm-hmm. a carbon dioxide that gets uh, um, absorbed into the oceans, and the oceans have a, been absorbing uh, a huge amount of carbon dioxide, so they've been kind of acting as a buffer uh, towards the amount of uh, carbon, dioxide in the at- carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So actually, uh, you know, the, the planet would be a lot warmer if it wasn't for this role that the oceans have played, you know, throughout uh, the industrial period. But as a result of that, it changes the ocean chemistry. So now that we have more uh, carbon dioxide dissolved in the oceans, we know that the oceans are acidifying as a result of it. So one aspect of this project is actually sort of exploring the opportunity that we could um, use the ocean's buffering capacity as a way to sequester more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to mitigate the, uh, the impacts of fossil fuels. Um, But then, yeah, that's kind of the tech side of this project is trying to figure out, okay, how do we do that? And how do we do that in a way that is not going to have negative impacts on the marine ecosystems and the whole, you know, food web that they support and the fisheries that uh, we rely on in the region. So that's uh, that's a a lot of the interesting science that is part of this project. Yeah, because people think of carbon sinks as old growth forests and the Amazon rainforest, what have you. So it's quite interesting to look at the ocean on this front. Help me understand better and more clear what a marine biological pump is. I know it's about separating carbon that sinks to the floor versus what released into the atmosphere. So tell us about that. Yeah, so basically it's trying to uh, account for these different mechanisms that carbon comes from the atmosphere uh, into the oceans, as well as, you know, the food web and how carbon from, you know, phytoplankton and zooplankton that you mentioned before also gets sequestered to the deeper levels of the ocean. So we can think that, um, you know, if we have uh, food web and production in uh, um, phytoplankton, zooplankton and fish, you know, a lot of that kind of stays in the upper levels of the ocean in the the shallower depths. Um, But some of it actually does sink into the deeper parts of the ocean and it stays there for long periods of time. So that's kind of one of these long carbon sinks that we can think of. So there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in terms of, you know, how quickly these processes are happening, how much carbon is going to these deeper levels, how this is also being affected by the change of, uh, of chemistry as a result of more carbon dioxide being dissolved into the ocean. So these are all sort of critical knowledge gaps in uh, understanding, you know, our global scale of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the role that the oceans play. So these are some of the kind of the factors that we'll be zeroing in on, trying to figure out better ways of measuring these different interactions and uh, and then how we can include those in our projections of climate change uh, globally and for the region. 
I recall reading that article in the Gazette saying that the North Atlantic has absorbed approximately 40% of fossil fuel emissions since the beginning of the industrial era. And you mentioned carbon that sinks to the sea floor and how long it stays there and the impact on creating more acidic oceans. When we talk about rising sea temperatures and the acidic nature, which is, I think, something that doesn't get enough attention, and the role that carbon plays within, so is it better, or I suppose you don't know by, by now, you know, releasing more to the atmosphere versus sedimentation of carbon? Is there one thought or school of thought about what is better when we're trying to protect acidic levels or rising sea temperatures or phytoplankton or whatever the case may be? Well, I mean, at this point, we don't really control the amount of carbon dioxide that's being uh, absorbed by the ocean. So this is kind of a natural process that happens based on, you know, the buffering capacity and uh, the equilibrium between the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the oceans. But one aspect of this project is actually trying to manipulate uh, a part of that. And so um, I think you mentioned before carbon dioxide removal. So this is an emerging technology uh, and field of investment, frankly, where a lot of people are trying to understand, okay, we know that the oceans have this huge buffering capacity of carbon dioxide. The unfortunate thing is it makes them more acidic when, uh, when it does so. But what happens if we put um, something that's basic in the ocean to kind of balance that acidity? And then it also allows for more carbon dioxide to get uh, absorbed. So one of the things people are experimenting with is putting uh, limestone into oceans mm. in order to kind of uh, reduce the acidity of the, the, uh, the, the seawater and then provide more potential for increased absorption of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So that's one thing that, uh, that people are trying to look at in terms of a technology that could potentially um, mitigate some of these impacts of greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> Not to oversimplify, but similar to what I would do with my lawn to re reduce yeah. the acidic content of my soil, I suppose. Yes. So that uh, it's the same principle. And uh, But the, then the question becomes, you know, in order to do this at a scale that becomes meaningful, where you actually take a good enough dent of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, you know, we have to do it at a very large scale. And then we also have to try to figure out, okay, can we do this in a way that is not going to negatively impact coastal ecosystems and fisheries and all these types of things. So that's really the, the crux, is trying to figure out, is it possible to scale this up to a level that has a meaningful impact? And is it possible to do it in a way that's not going to have a negative impact on you know these coastal ecosystems and fisheries that we rely upon? And I wonder what the difference would be if we were talking about monitoring part of the Labrador Sea and the coldest current in the world being the Labrador current versus other bodies of water removed from that extremely cold current. Uh, where are your focus areas in the ocean before we let you go? Yeah, so the Labrador uh, Sea is one of the focus areas because we know this is an extremely important area globally in terms of the, the flux of carbon. So we know that, you know, a lot of uh, ocean circulation happens in the, the Labrador Sea. We know it's incredibly dynamic and volatile, and for those reasons, it plays a really important role in the global uh, carbon cycle and oxygen cycle and ocean circulation. So, you know, scientists all around the world have pinpointed that the Labrador Sea is a really important area to understand in order to have, a, you know, better predictions of what we might expect under these different greenhouse gas scenarios. So that's something we really highlighted in the proposal, saying, you know, this area is highly important. It's highly uncertain. Let's get out there. Let's put some more uh, scientific equipment. Let's come up with new ideas. Let's bring all these different scientists together to try to, you know, improve our understanding of what's happening in this important region. Dr. Eddie, fascinating work. Uh, good luck to you and your colleagues. And feel free to touch base throughout the conduct of this research to give us an idea where we are. 
All right. Cheers. Thanks, Patty. Good to have you on. Thanks. Okay, cheers. Take care. It's Dr. Tyler Eddy, research scientist at the Marine Institute. When we come back, East Coast Trail, the fixed link, which gets some conversation in some corners. We're going to entertain more of that today. And then a fundraiser called the Cuddle Bed Fundraiser coming up in Grand Bank. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Daniel. You're on the air. <laughs> I don't know what happened there, Dave, but let's see if we can get it back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Julia Penny. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How you doing? Um, fantastic. We've got our Trailblazer community hike happening tomorrow in Pooch Cove. So uh, we're really excited for that. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about it. So what exactly is going on? Give the folks a reminder. Yes. So tomorrow is International Trails Day, for those who may not know. Mm-hmm. So every year, the East Coast Trail Association celebrates by hosting our Trail Razor Community Hike. And tomorrow, we're being hosted in the town of Pooch Cove. And there are several different hikes happening on Biscayne Cove Pass and Styles Cove Pass. Plus, we have an overnight hike this year, and the hikers actually just set out on the trail for Whitehorse Pass, and they'll be camping on Whitehorse tonight and join us in Pooch Cove tomorrow. Awesome. So there's 25 paths inside the 336 kilometers. Do we happen to know what some of the more popular hikes would be? Because I know not everyone has it in and would go to the Spout, for instance. So do we know what the real popular ones are? Yeah, actually, Styles Cove that we'll be hiking tomorrow is definitely one of the popular ones. There's a lot of beautiful waterfalls. Um, Longshore Pass with Topsail Bluff is super popular. Um, some some of the different attractions, you know, bring out different people. Like you mentioned, obviously, the Spout. Everybody knows about the Spout. That's a really popular popular one. Uh, La Mancha Suspension Bridge on the Village Pass down there is also really popular for sure. So during the this hike to celebrate International Trail, what is it called, International Trail? day is that what it is yeah that's right okay so is this not only an opportunity to bring the hikers together maybe for their first time to experience the majesty of the east coast trail you doing any fundraising as well Exactly. Yeah. So it's all it's our community hikes that we get. We have hundreds of hikers joining us tomorrow for that day of community. But we are also fundraising for the East Coast Trail. We're targeting a goal of $100,000 and we are really, really close. So I'm encouraging everybody who can hear me now to go to eastcoasttrail.com and either register to join us tomorrow. You know, we just heard the forecast. It's, it's always a good day to hike. So don't let that uh, turn you off. But if you can't join us tomorrow, you can always make a donation to some of the participants who are fundraising really hard and help us reach our $100,000 goal. Give us an idea how many people use East Coast, Tra- East Coast Trail annually. We did a survey almost a decade ago now, and there was close to 100,000 individual hikes that happened every year. So we know that number grew over the pandemic especially, um, but there are a lot of hikes that happen um, by people, local people who plan their trips to Newfoundland and Labrador and the East Coast Trail at the top of their list. Um, it's a well-used, well-loved trail for sure. That it is. Hopefully you have a big turnout tomorrow. And the weather is what the weather is at this time exactly. of year in this part of the province. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say this morning, Julia, before we say goodbye? We hope that you join us tomorrow. Um, and if you can't, you know, always using the East Coast Trail, renewing your membership, um, following us on social, those are some great ways to support the ECT. So thanks. Appreciate your time. Good luck with it. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Julia. Bye-bye. That's Julia Penny with the East Coast Trail. Let's get another one before we go to the break. Let's go to line number four. May, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, the reason I'm calling is because I wanted to inform people 
about a gospel concert that's being held June the 4th at the Masonic Hall in Bjorn. Um, this uh, group is called Junior Age and Friends. The reason for this concert is for um, a cuddle bed. It's for uh, the Blue Christ home here in Grand Bank. And uh, it's a worthwhile cause, as you know. Uh, it's a, a cuddle bed for those that don't necessarily know or understand is um, it's a, a bigger bed for someone that's in palliative care, right? right? Yeah, it allows two people and to be in the same bed. That's right. It, exactly. And um, it's a worthwhile cause, as, as everyone, I'm sure, feels that way. And um, Blue Crest serves the whole Bjorn Peninsula. Um, like I said, this uh, concert is being held Sunday, June the 4th at 2 p.m. at the Masonic Hall in Bjorn. And there's also going to be another one June the 11th at the Lions Club in Marystown and June 25th at the Anglican Church in St. Lawrence. These cuddle beds aren't cheap. I was involved in a fundraising effort a number of years ago to buy one. At that time, I think it was $15,000. Uh, yeah, I think they're probably double that now. Yeah, there's really got to be more because that was a number of years yeah. ago at 15000 yeah. So this is good stuff. Who's going to be some of the people that will hear singing gospel at your particular fundraiser? Uh, the names of the people are um, Junior Urge, Thomas Edwards, Harvey Rose, and my husband, Lloyd Burt. Terrific. Uh, any more information you'd like to share before we run out of time this morning? No, I just, uh, I'm just, like I said, reaching out to the public and uh, just let them know that this is a worthwhile cause to, uh, and I'm sure they'll enjoy the concert as well. Good luck with it. Hopefully you have uh, good attendance and raise that money because I'm actually going to have a look now as to what these cuddle beds cost, but they are certainly a big help to families who are going through a loved one being in palliative care. Good luck with it, Mary. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show, sir. What's on your mind? Thank you very much. Uh, I About 10 years ago, I took a bad fall, and I had an MRI done, and I had a small lump on my brain, and I ended up with the tremors and the Parkinson's. And my neurologist had me on clonazepam 2 okay. milligram, and one in the morning, one in the evening, and one a half of one at night time. And my mobility come back almost about 90%. People couldn't get over how good I was doing. And the doctor I had at then, he passed away, and... Uh, I was trying to get me medical records, but I can't get it. I phoned the hospital here, everywhere here in Cornerbrook, and he says he haven't got them there. And the doctor I had recently, she took me off everything and put me on profanol. And uh, I've been on that three or four months, and it's not helped me at all. I'm after a foul about 10 or 20 times. I broke two coffee tables falling. And I hit me head the other day on the uh, corner of the television. 
and I phoned the Minister of Health and the Premier's office, you know, and I voted Liberal all my life, and nobody never got back to me. I'm sorry to hear that. I wonder why they changed you off a drug that had been I so don't successful. Know. That's what uh, these uh, one uh, doctors up there, up to the hospital, but he never, he couldn't, he never prescribed it for me. He said he don't understand why he took it off me if I was doing so good on it. It's odd. So if the hospital wouldn't have your medical records, where else could they possibly be? That's what I mean. And I phoned uh, the doctor I had recently because she took me off all my medications. I suffered from migraine, severe migraine headaches from the fall. And I was taking Florinol C yesterday, one in the morning, one in the evening. I can't even watch television or have the lights on. And... Uh, her receptionist said she had them, and then I phoned next week after. She tried to say that she never had them. Some strange things going on with people's medical records. It's their own personal information. You think it should be as simple as a phone call or an email to get your hands on your own right, stuff. Sure. Yeah. You know, I don't understand, and, and uh, I'm scared. I, I haven't been out to the door in a couple of weeks. I'm scared to go down over steps where it's like so bad. And me head is like a jackhammer going through it. Migraine headache. Have you tried to call the college or the medical association so they I can get I tried to college uh, physicians and surgeons. Okay. But uh, you got to leave a message, and nobody never got back to me. Well, hopefully a representative of their group, whether it be at the Medical Association or the college, is listening in this morning, and check your voicemail because there's some pretty realistic and not complicated requests coming in about how people can access their own personal medical information. If I can get you some answers or I can come up with somewhere to point you, I'll try, Peter. Okay, thank you very much, Patty. I wish you good luck, sir. Okay, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. I mean, how, how was it so complicated to get your own medical records? I just don't get that at all. Let's go to line number one. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. You? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you, and thanks for having me on your show there. Uh, Patty, what I'm calling about there last week, I was driving between uh, Square Pond Park and Gander, and uh, uh, apparently there's a lot of moose on the road between Gander and uh, Gamble, if anyone's listening. And uh, so I seen one, and... It occurred to me like uh, you, there's a number you called uh, for the I know it's one eight five five or whatever I was driving, but I couldn't remember the number offhand. And I got thinking, I said it must that must be an easier solution to it. And I think what they should do with the moose alerts, tied in with the, the nine one one system. At least it's a three digit you can dial or whatever right away and get the alerts out to the people. Uh, uh, right away, and I, I and that's what occurred to me because I couldn't remember the number offhand totally, right? So, so uh, I think that's something maybe the government should look at, and uh, it is essential because there's a lot of moose actions, and there is a lot of moose this year, you know, uh, by uh, by the side of our highways and so forth. So, uh, that's what occurred to me, and I said mm, maybe that should be tied in with 911 system. So, anyone call and, and give a moose alert and. Everybody's aware of uh, their surroundings. Okay, so what happens if I call whatever number? How do they get the information out to the general public? 
Well, the, you was like anything. I guess you, you probably do it through uh, probably uh, a text form. Like you know, sometimes we get those uh, emergency alerts, whatever. But uh, do it that way. But not with the sound or whatever. Just have a like uh, come to your phone because if you're driving and the sound, whatever, it could stir somebody. But have it come through. Uh, most people got cell phones now. Anyhow, have it come through a text form or or that way. And and here's the alert for whatever part of the province there's uh, moose. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, and, and we, notice, you know, sure, we try to do our bit when we were given the heads up that yeah. there's a moose sighted one area or another. But of course, what I always think is, fine, I'll be happy to give out the information. But when you're out there, especially this time of year, the possibility yeah. to encounter a moose can be anywhere. We see pictures in Paradise, CBS, right in the middle of those towns and cities. Yeah, and you don't have to be on the highway to see moose, so it's probably no, worth your true. while to be aware every time, everywhere you're going, at any time of day. Oh yes, and I totally agree. I'm I'm always uh, watching myself, but uh, but uh, like in that case, I was going to report report the moose sighting to that number, but I couldn't recall the number. So I said maybe there's an easier solution. So that's what uh, occurred to me, and then that way that 911 could like go to people's cell phones or and here's the alert. So it's just something that occurred to me, and uh, uh, when I when I seen the moose, so I mean try to remember the number is eight five five whatever it is and. And uh, so I think that's the easier way, and uh, it is an emergency because it could save lives, and uh, and I think that's something maybe the Newfoundland Labrador government should take a look at. Fair enough. It's a good suggestion and the final word today. Daryl, thanks for the time. All right. Again, thank you for your time as well, Patty, and you and staff at VOCM have a great weekend and the listening audience as well. Thank you. Same to you, Daryl. All the okay, best. all the best to you. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was indeed the last word. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.